Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls. This is part 8 of A Dance with Dragons. Hello and welcome. As always, I am Sir Buckley, your resident green person, here to lead you through our three chapters again. Yes, we've got another three chapter episode for you today. I am talking to you from a bloody cold England. Yes, the temperature finally. It held off for a little while, but now it has plummeted plummeted i tell you me and the pup were out in the mornings there was mist everywhere frost on the ground winter has come my fingers and toes i get the reynolds disease they do not like it puppy's paws are cold but she doesn't mind too much and the sun is much missed although i must say it's still pretty sunny just cold so you get some nice views at least so anyway, that's where I'm coming from. Wherever you are, I hope you're okay, whether in lockdown or whatever you're putting up with. It's tough times all round, but hopefully this episode, this podcast can help you through a little bit because we do get nice messages, nice tweets every now and then. And let me assure you, they are very, very much well received. It really makes doing all these notes and all this editing and all that worth it. So I thank you and I'm glad it helps. Before we get going today, of course, I must say a happy birthday. Belated now, but happy birthday to the main man himself, Aziz. I know you've all said it already anyway, but I'm going to say it now here on the aisle because, well, we probably wouldn't be listening to Scraps and Scrolls without him, would we? So happy birthday for last week, Aziz. Hope you had a lovely day. And as always, of course, you guys know you can catch Aziz and Ashea on Sunday nights with the Valoridist streams. Speaking of people over there in the States, I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving last week. Of course, nothing really to do with me over in Britain, but any day where you can find some joy and have a bit of a happy bubble there is very much needed. So again, hopefully you all enjoyed that. Quick apology on my part before we get going here. Well, really, it should be Podbean's apology because, again, for some reason, the episode did not upload to the public stream on the day that I told it to. It waited a little bit and didn't get up till Thursday, so I'm sorry for that delay, but I hope you got there in the end. Not sure why Podbean can't quite get it together. I don't really ask a lot of it, but there we go. Hopefully that won't happen in the future. But again, my apologies. And hopefully you're listening to this on the correct day. Also apologies on my part because I forgot to run the good old question of which chapter got the most airtime last week. So my fault there. All leaderboard positions are still the same. I'll make sure I have done it for today's episode and going forward. Just a bit busy. Slipped my mind that time round. If I had to guess, I haven't checked, but if I had to guess, I think it probably would have been Asher. That would make most sense. Anyway, before we get going, only one more thing to do from me, and that is to thank our wonderful patrons, of course, such as KM, Lord Commander Namian Darkling, Aegon the Sixth, and of course, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, and all our other patrons as well. Your support, as always, very much appreciated. Hope you're enjoying your experience over there on the aisle. Okay, that's enough chit-chat. Let's get going with what we've got today. Like I say, another three chapters because we're still working with the big long ones. So three last week, three this week, and today we've got going for you, firstly, Tyrion 7. That big, 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 big long, the biggest chapter in the book. Within there, we'll get our best look at Volantis, and yet again, Tyrion is starting a new part of his journey. Yeah, I know, we say that like every other chapter for Tyrion, don't we? After that, we'll finally head over to Westeros for an extended period of time. We're going back to John. seems like ages, even though it's not really. John 6, where John has a bit of a run-in with the man he believes to be Rattleshirt. And Melisandre starts putting her imprint on the wall. And then we'll finish with, yes, you know it's coming. Unfortunately, we have our first goodbye. It is Davos 4, the famous Davos chapter. The famous speech from Wyman Mandley and a quest out into the wild. So I know you're looking forward to that one. So really... I don't think I'll delay you any further. Let's get going, shall we? Tyrion 7 You'd think George might have given us a bit of a longer break from Tyrion, considering what went down last time in his chapter, and the pure, dense, emotional weight of that ending. 
It was a lot to wrap our heads around and definitely feel through. I was in a very, very grumpy mood. I've had to look at that for a few days, I can tell you. But perhaps he's of the opinion, hey, I need to get the reader back on board with this guy fairly quickly and he wants to give us something else to talk about other than that chapter ending because guess what? We still have a lot of Tyrion left in the story so we kind of need to get that sorted. It is a valid question of whether we can ever really be on board with Tyrion after Tyrion 6 and well I'm gonna have to leave that up to you that's very personal to us all at least I would say it is different now we have to see him differently there's no avoiding that but mostly as we go I suppose and maybe it would all be a lot easier if perhaps Tyrion just showed any guilt or even recognition of what happened in Selhoris but unfortunately we're going to be left waiting but what about Tyrion 7? What about today? As you know, probably, it is the longest chapter of the book. So I'm not going to spend too long introducing it to you. There's enough to wade through. Basically, it is our big Volantis chapter. This is where we get our best look at the city. This is where we go to multiple different parts of it. We see specific structures. We get a better look at more characteristics. And all of that is wrapped up in Tyrion being a prisoner which is useful because there's going to be a lot more of that later going on. And obviously, because the chapter is so long, we get multiple different talking points. We get Tyrion in despair. We actually get Tyrion with a bit of hope. We have Tyrion thinking about this angle and that angle of this plot and that plot. And then towards the end, it all funnels towards what is actually happening. Tyrion realises what is happening. We get the next step on his journey. And we get the introduction to a very, very important character for dance, Penny. Yeah, I really, we're probably not even going to have time to really crack into her as a character and her place in the story today. But I think we all know that she is really, really a strong characteristic of dance. You think dance, you think Penny pretty quickly. At least I do. And unfortunately, we also have to reintroduce ourselves to Sir Jorah Mormon. Hmm, dickhead alert. Just to warn you, even though I'm sure you already know. But hey, don't worry, he gets a good dressing down near the end of this chapter, so we have that to look forward to. And well, yeah, I think that'll be it for the intro. We've got a lot to talk through. Let's get on with it, shall we? So like I said, we open with a return to Volantis. Finally, after our initial introduction about 21 chapters ago, basically at the beginning of the book back in Quentin 1. Since then, we've never actually returned, even though it feels like we have. It feels like we've been building to it throughout the last three or four Tyrion chapters and have essentially been in Volantis land. But now we're actually here, we're at the place proper, and like I said, we're going to get our best look at the city. And that figures to be important because you've already heard me say, pretty sure Volantis is going to be a major setting for something in the future but we'll see why as we go. We've had reasons before, we'll have them in this chapter too. Thanks to the sheer amount of time we have in this chapter, we were going to build on some of what we saw from Quentin, or what's been talked about in Tyrion's previous journey. We'll discover some new things, completely new to us. And remember, even though he won't actually come here, we will have Victorian having a little flyby later on, so we'll set some stuff up for him as well. So Volantis has just been building up. It's been part of the big plan for ages, even if we know that's scuppered now. We're having major characters involved with it at the beginning, middle and end of the book. And even if we find that itch isn't really scratched in dance, the feeling is still present here at the beginning of the chapter, as Tyrion enters a city that is completely new to him, in a way that is also completely new to him. Strapped to the back of a horse, and we're wondering what is next for this character clearly beginning a new part of his life. We know, even if he doesn't, the rescue is already out of the question, and we assume that he's still going to be heading east by the end of this chapter. But how's that going to work? What are the details? Well, we're going to have to find out, aren't we? The same stars as in Westeros, Tyrion Lannister reflected. So this is Tyrion's first thought as he approaches the city, that his Selhoris and Crayane were huge to him, must seem a wonder, because this is way, way bigger. He's a bit preoccupied for that, though. Instead, he's thinking he's beneath the same sky, but everything under it has changed. He's gone from the son of the Warden of the West, the son of the Hand, the Hand himself, a member of the new royal family, 
to now being tied up on the back of a horse and carried through the gates like a bag of oats. It's a pretty big drop. All of his prestige and dignity has never been further away. His name and money mean absolute zero and have obviously failed to protect him. He's in a completely new world, circumstantially, even if it has the same stars. We've already spoke about him having to make the adjustment just to not being unknown, not being famous, and we saw that before with the guards touching him freely, etc., or people just treating him as the same level as them for once. We barely had time to get used to that before he's tumbled down even lower on the social scale. So Tyrion is getting a reminder of that, and his first real introduction to how the world of slaves, those who were once his essential polar opposites, have it. Let's not forget that is going to be a major part of Tyrion's arc going forward and a large focus of his relationship with Penny, realising how bad others have had it while he's been rich and safe and warm and fed for 99% of his life. No one is saying he hasn't had a tough existence with considerable problems, of course not, but he has been largely ignorant of a lot of the plight of the lower classes, especially the enslaved, obviously, as they technically don't have slaves in Westeros. (laughs) Anyway, this first experience comes via trying to bribe the gate guard to cut him loose as they enter the city. That suggestion is ignored. His head gets rubbed for good luck again, as it did in Sel Horus, and nothing happens. It's not pointed out explicitly here at the beginning, but as the chapter goes, Tyrion will learn that in this city and in this part of the world, once you wear the chains, or even worse, a tattoo, that is all that people will see. You are removed from the rest of society and will not be listened to whatever your story is or whatever you offer because why would anyone but a slave be chained? Slaves wear chains? You've got chains to your slaves. That's the logic. That's the extent of the thinking that goes on here. So why would they interact with you or believe you or have anything to do with you? You are slave and they are not. It makes you wonder how many have actually slid into this hell of existence just by someone slapping a chain on the wrist and letting that do the talking. As we'll find out, once you're in, there's almost no way of getting out. Ironically, while speaking about something else, Tyrion hits the nail on the head, and men see only what they wish. Once they see change in Volantis, that's the conversation over in 99% of cases. Finding no success with the guard, Tyrion tries again with his captor, the man we already know as Ser Jorah. Tyrion still thinks he is being taken back to King's Landing and Cersei, so he spends time trying to convince Jorah that it's not worth his time. Cersei's a liar, you're not going to get what you want out of it. Jorah, likely welcoming a little confusion in his prisoners, should anything go wrong, neither confirms nor denies that's what he's going for, for now anyway. Instead, he just drops a few more hints for Tyrion's identity game, such as being born into nobility, and one who apparently had a strong connection with their father, as his tone turns dark when he wonders how a son could kill a father. Some of that is obviously the huge taboo that kinslaying carries in Westeros as a curse, not to mention the general moral laws that accompany every world, but we can think about how this probably means a little bit more to Jorah given the guilt he hopefully, hopefully not confirmed, carries around for the heartache he gave his own father with his crimes and his running away. As he says, he's aware that he brought shame to his father and his house, so this likely follows him around not so very differently to what we saw with John Connington last week. He'll know how much that hurt Dior, especially with him having already given up so much for the Night's Watch, so the idea of someone choosing to hurt their father just highlights his own crimes. In fairness, while Dior Mormont might not have been the smartest Lord Commander and came up short on a lot of his duties, he was a bloody angel compared to Tywin Lannister, so the comments are semi-unfair even if Jorah doesn't know all the details. Looking down on, or the shaming, rolls right off Tyrion's back anyway, because he's been doing that to himself in some ways since the end of Storm. Jorah can't hurt him in that way. And we get a reminder that Tyrion still has a general disdain for life. I think life is a jape. Yours, mine, everyone's. So that gives a pretty good view of what he was up to in Tyrion 6. Why care about the Sunset Girl, or what he's doing to Aegon and therefore Westeros? It's all just a game, a game that he hates. So no, we don't have learning or guilt just yet, unfortunately. 
Once inside the city, it's initially what we've seen before, and whether that's in actual Volantis with Quentin or the sister cities that Tyrion has already visited, more squares and savas games and the oddities of these headless statues that perhaps hint at the city's capability for a riot or an overthrow when the time is right. But after that, Jorah takes us through a new area where not everything looks so grand, we're soon standing on mud instead of stone, we're around even more slaves than before and intimidation is on every doorstep. Tyrion reflects on the grand reputation of Volantis as they go through this area, grandest and most populous of the nine free cities, pointing out to us how much of that is mere boasting now. The wars of old took a toll on number and design, and even though they can present a good front still, there are large areas of the city that are basically the same as those ruins that Tyrion has already passed, with their dry fountains and their vines everywhere. So we have that sense of fakery behind propaganda that we once had in Carf and in some other places as well. It seems to infect this entire part of the world, and really, it just adds up to this general feeling that Volantis' time is up. Again, we're having that build-up feeling. So if you are like me, and believe that some big event is coming to the city, whether in the form of actual dragon flame or just Daenerys herself, this all fits in perfectly. Volantis is slowly becoming like those ruined cities. It's sinking, just like they, just like Astapor, because it's weighed down by this terrible evil that they've supported and are now fighting to defend in slavery. Tyrion notices all this decay and rot, and how Volantis is not what it once was, or what it still claims to be, but none of that is really of importance to him right now, so he just continues to try and annoy Jorah. When he brings up sex workers, while again also displaying zero awareness about what happened with the Sunset Girl, we see that Jorah believes himself morally superior to Tyrion. The Kinslayer thing is a large part of that, but he likely would have thought so anyway. And why? Because we know Jorah Mormont, that's why, even if we haven't seen him for a while. We know he's never actually accepted fault for anything. He's such a petty, immature coward that he generally thinks none of the crimes really count for him because he's always had a reason or an excuse. For everyone else, yes, of course, but not for him. So we see why he gets annoyed when Tyrion points out that they were both in the same brothel. Mm -hmm. Because that's the other immaturity that Jorah always carries around. The inability to handle anyone pointing out flaws that are perfectly true. It puts him in a proper tantrum, as we've seen before. We learn that Tyrion has pushed these buttons before and Jorah has answered with violence before as well, which is zero surprise for either of them really. At the same time, Tyrion reminds us that he still has those mushrooms from Illyro's garden stuffed in his boot, something we've likely forgotten given all that's happened recently. Last time they came up, he was thinking of using them as a weapon against John Connington. It was a good job he didn't, or he'd still be at the bottom of the Roin. Here, interestingly, he doesn't think to use them against Jorah, only that he'll never give Cersei the satisfaction of regaining him alive, if you get my drift. The pair continue through Volantis, moving through the bad neighbourhood and back out into another well-to-do area that looks essentially as it did on the other side. However, Tyrion notes other key differences. Earlier on, probably in Quentin 1, we compared the city to Vastofrak as that middle beacon where two worlds meet, split apart into the east and west markets. And that gets repeated a bit here, as Tyrion describes the river as the divider, with the western side being the more open and hospitable to people across the world, especially those from Westeros. On the east side, it's more of the original city, with much more of the old world and everything from those old empires built in. Which is bad news for Tyrion, because it's the east side they're heading into now. And on this side, he's way more unlikely to find someone that might know him, might know his last name at least, or might even be able to converse with him in his own language. But he does have some distractions, such as the appearance of hundreds upon hundreds of elephants. And that's interesting for someone who's never had the chance to see one, but also reinforces this idea he already had about being a fish out of water and in an entirely new world. And even more than the elephants are the slaves, the ones whose ranks he wants Cersei to join. And he makes the same note many others have already, and that I've certainly repeated enough through these early chapters, the slaves vastly outnumber the free here. Tyrion thinks this is as much as a 9 to 1 advantage in this part of the city. That's ridiculous, and I'm pretty sure this is the third time, if not more, George has mentioned it. So I'm just becoming more and more convinced that this will come into play eventually. We know George's repeat rule. 
And yes, some of those remarks have come from the other cities that Tyrion's already visited, but you know it's the same feeling and it's the same general area. Tyrion's interested why so many appear to be gathering on this road to the Longbridge, giving us more details about the structure of the city. And we find that this is another building block that Tyrion is already semi-familiar with from his time in Selhoris, the Red Priest, that's the reason. We had a big discussion about them and their place within this part of the world and what that'll mean if they're siding with Daenerys already. But here we get the extra note that the slaves are buying into this as well. They feel a real affiliation with the Red Priests on top of Daenerys' general message of freedom and you've really got to think it's going to add up to something. And again, as we've mentioned before, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to wait for her to actually show up interesting concept there. Next on this idea that everything is just done bigger and better here is the Red Priest answer to the Great Sept of Baelor, which we already know is a gigantic structure, but now we find that their temple in Volantis is three times the size. Here's a description for you. An enormity of pillars, steps, buttresses, bridges, domes and towers flowing into one another as if they had all been chiselled from one colossal rock. The temple of the Lord of Light loomed like Aegon's high hill. A hundred hues of red, yellow, gold and orange met and melded in the temple walls, dissolving one into the other like clouds at sunset. Its slender towers twisted ever upward, frozen flames dancing as they reached for the sky. Fire turned to stone, Tyrion thought. Well, yeah, that's pretty good writing, isn't it? Well done, George. And we've got to say, it definitely sounds a lot cooler than the Sept of Baelor. It's a clearer message, clearer motif, more dominating in both mind and soul. Tyrion's had his eyes open to the truth of the world at large several times in the book already, but this really sticks out as taking his breath away, and Tyrion is a smart guy who doesn't just drop his jaw for anything. So even before this scene begins, we get another reminder of how powerful this religion is in this part of the world, again lending weight to the idea of them supporting Daenerys and increasing those questions we have about Zora High and everything else. It's pretty fun actually to think back on our introduction to this side of the story, to R'hllor and the Fire Priest in general. We had just one lone woman with secret powers far away from any of her teammates. Now we're finally here, seeing what Melisandre actually comes from, assuming she's you know, not a rebel like we sometimes wonder. So it's a pretty good chapter sequencing considering what's coming up in the next chapter of Jon and not too far down the road in general. Outside of this temple, beside the great night fires, is the high priest that Tyrion heard about previously, Benero, who is preaching to an entire square of people who are clearly devoted to him and his message. We get an interesting description of the man himself in this terrible red mask of slave tattoos. That's obviously a large part of why he is such a following, and again will tie in with what we're about to learn about Melisandre soon. We don't get to actually meet Benero so far in the series, even though it makes sense that we will in the future, and perhaps then we'll get to see this mask a bit clearer. From this distance, Tyrion says it looks like tattoos that crackle across his face and give the impression of fire. Tattoos are part of it, I know, but I wonder if there's some kind of runes involved here as well. We're about to see him make some fire glyphs after all, so the possibility is there. And given what we see from Mokaro later on with Victarion, I wouldn't be surprised if his face actually semi-looks like it's on fire, genuinely. The sight of this grand temple and all the people listening is so amazing it makes Tyrion and Jorah temporarily forget they're supposed to dislike each other as Tyrion tries to learn and Jorah gives up his knowledge about the structure of this religion. Specifically, the Fiery Hand, their version of the sparrows but a thousand times more intimidating. This is good setup for later, as we'll see Mokoro with his own Fire Knights, but it also gives us further information about yet another fighting force, 1,000 strong, that Daenerys could add to her numbers. Fire Knights for the Fire Queen, makes sense to me. Benero's speech is in full swing. He already has the crowd eating out of his hand, but then he adds a bit of flash and magic by writing Valerian glyphs in the air with actual burning fire. You can see where Melisandre gets it from, can't you? This obviously enraptures the crowd and makes you sit up and take a bit more notice. It's another build-up from long ago when Daenerys first saw the fire mages back in Calf. So we have to wonder, can Melisandre do this if she were back here? Could Benero do it before the dragons were born? They're interesting questions, and it also makes you ask what he might be able to do, or Melisandre as well, 
If they were in arm's length of a dragon, when Daenerys finally comes, yes, very enticing. Tyrion is surprised as the rest, but he's also a bit more aware of the general mood. This isn't a happy sermon. This is a speech designed to rile up and provoke. This is a sea of people ready to push back, as Tyrion tells us of his memories of the bread riots. Given their numbers of slaves versus freedmen, imagine what such a riot would actually look like. It'd be devastation. So we're again thinking of the Daenerys effect should she head this way. Bonero is explicitly preaching for action against the state. He is splitting the city in two. And it's that kind of thing that has to have a payoff at some point. I'm going to say it like 30 times in this chapter. Be prepared. Tyrion, upon learning all this, has a thought that we might not have expected. Concern for Prince Aegon. How odd. By pure coincidence, it seems that his advice to strike west at the earliest possibility might have actually been spot on. These people are zealots, they are wild, they are powerful, and they are obviously convinced that Daenerys is their chosen one. If another were to turn up claiming that he is on the same level, seeking to marry her, and obviously weakening her own claim to the Iron Throne, it's not going to go down well. The Red Priests are not going to welcome a split, a second choice. Daenerys is their hero. The power of the Targaryens must reside with her alone. The fact that Aegon is a young man whose choice in the matter is actually fairly limited does not seem likely to stop him reaching a potentially fiery end from the Red Priests as a way of declaring support for Daenerys. The dwarf did not need to be a prophet himself to foresee how Bonero and his followers might react to a second Targaryen. Griff will see that too, surely, he thought, surprised to find how much he cared. Yes, you, you read that right. Tyrion actually does care about something. It's a likely and quick note here, and not one that Tyrion focuses on, but it seems pretty huge to us. His actions and his own thoughts of late have insisted that he anything but cares for the rest of the world or for himself. But now he finally lets slip that his time aboard the Shy Maid did mean something to him. That little group of people that accepted him into their number was a cathartic experience that likely made some road, some teeny tiny road, towards healing his soul, even if he gave himself a gigantic setback in Sel Horus. He cares about what happens to them, about the lad especially it seems. There's a soft spot there for Aegon, perhaps because of the many strings he is being pulled along by. Whatever the reason though, Tyrion does feel something, which like I say is a major step. Not that he can act upon it or do anything about it, but still. Not wanting Aegon to be killed by these nutcases is what we've got and what we should take. And we should also probably assume he's not just thinking this because if Aegon gets killed and the war doesn't come to ruin Cersei. I'm hoping that's not his reason. On top of that, this sets up another level of conflict between the two lone Targaryens. There's reason enough for that to happen anyway because of their personal feelings towards one another, but I think it will be their various attachments politically that will actually pull them into conflict with each other. Perhaps it will be the Red Priests encouraging Daenerys that Aegon must be destroyed, or maybe Duran Mattel doing the same on the reverse side. There's lots more groundwork for that being given right here. By now, Jorah has guided them through the masses and out the other side to a stable so that he can sell his horse while Tyrion is lashed to a post because that's his life now, and no one bats an eye at that kind of thing because this is Volantis. Slavery is as normal as blinking to these people. Then we go from stables to smithy as Jorah transfers Tyrion from ropes to chains with him pitifully thinking he was about to be free just for a second. So the great fall of Tyrion Lannister tumbles down another step. He is an actual man in change, a whole further rung down on the social ladder. It's official. The importance of the moment can't be understated. There's a huge fall for his ego and his emotion, given where he's come from and what he once was, but also physically as well. Tyrion would have had enough issues trying to escape anyway, but now with heavy manacles to slow him down, it's all but impossible. Still, the true reason relates more to what we said at the chapter opening about how Volantis will treat anyone that looks like a slave and how this is the best guarantee that Jorah can ask for. The knight chuckled darkly. It's your mouth that concerns me, not your legs. In fetters, you're a slave. No one will listen to a word you say, not even those who speak the tongue of Westeros. We have to give credit to Jorah. He recognises that Tyrion's best weapon is his mouth. We've seen the evidence of that countless times. So to neutralise that, he doesn't need to hide him or gag him. 
Chains and manacles remove him from existence as far as the volunteers are concerned. Tyrion can say anything in the world and it's not going to matter now, and he knows it. So Jorah just took a big step forward in making his own mission that much easier. Tyrion's protests fall on deaf ears and he is truly bound, wrist to wrist, wrist to ankle, ankle to ankle. Wow, just consider actually living like that for a second. It's ridiculously uncomfortable, especially for someone already susceptible to muscle cramps and the sort. Tyrion is actually going to remain fairly upbeat considering his situation, though much of that is because he's merely thankful to be alive as he still believes that Jorah is taking him to Cersei. The thoughts that relate this almost come up as a surprise because I think we tend to forget this is what Tyrion thinks is going on. Tyrion thinks that as long as he's alive, he still has a chance to turn things to his advantage and get out from Sir Jorah's foot. Turns out the world will help him achieve that, just not in the way he would have wanted. Being alive might be enough to keep him relatively upbeat, but the first action performed while being chained, merely walking and trying to keep up with Jorah, should easily be enough to send him into a foul mood, as he is led through the street and then yanked forward to fall every time the walk becomes a bit difficult. This is a man who rode into King's Landing on a horse. Yes, he had to leave it via getting stuffed in a cask, but he still has a pride of sorts, and this is most definitely eating away at it, being led through the street like the lowest of the low. Ironically, that will sort of happen to another member of his family later in this book. Whether Jorah is doing this to intentionally embarrass Tyrion, or just because he wants him to hurry up, is a choice where likely no one is wrong. The difficult journey continues as the pair leave the east side of town for the west, where the travellers and out-of-towners are supposed to go. To do this, they go across the Long Bridge, right over the river as it enters the sea. It sounds like a hell of a structure with its fused stone and the creatures built into its arch to remind us a bit of Dragonstone, perhaps. It's an engineering marvel, no doubt, but it also reminds everyone of that glorious Dragon Age. There are few cities that are boasting something as cool as this. As they cross, Tyrion begins to spy the city they are much more used to, with the inns and brothels and surface tables everywhere. Before they get there, there's also this mini-city along the bridge itself with all sorts of shops and cellars. It's a fairly beautiful image until you reach the centre, with its collection of thieves' hands and criminal heads. There's never a missed opportunity to send a message in this world, is there? The crimes of the three criminals are pretty interesting. Tyrion takes the most note of the man who killed his father, for obvious reasons, but the others might have larger importance for the overall story. First is a woman killed for raising a hand to her owner, so a slave we're talking about. We likely didn't need reminding that this sort of thing is a common occurrence, but we have Volantis trying to remind all their slaves that their lives will be forfeit if they act against the system in any way, and they are worth less than their masters in any circumstances. Hmm, I wonder why they might want to be reminding them of that fact right now in this current climate. That ties in brilliantly with the third, an older man who was trying to start a rebellion and apparently spied for the Dragon Queen. I say ignore the spying part, for if this man is a spy for Danny's side, it is without Danny's knowledge, and at best he reports to someone beneath her. So we have someone apparently starting to try a rebellion, being placed right next to the very reason why they might want to start a rebellion in this female slave. Again, it's just adding and adding to the idea that this powder keg is going to go off. Clearly, the man's efforts were important enough for the city to display the punishment in one of the most important parts of the city, so everyone knows not to follow his example, because the possibility of such must be quite worrying for them. Again, it's that climate. It all fits in together. But perhaps my favourite note of Tyrion's journey across the bridge is this. To the north, the Rhoyne was a broad black ribbon, bright with stars, five times as wide as the Blackwater Rush at King's Landing. Five times. I know this is a bit of a rough estimation by Tyrion, but still, the mere idea is mind-boggling. Think of the size of it. The pair finally disembark to walk through the western half of the city on their way to Fishmonger's Square. Uh, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. And so does the merchant's house. Why is that? Ah, uh, yes, this is where Quentin and Chums were staying during Quentin 1. It's where they decided their fate. It's where they left their armour money, if Tyrion fancies a bit of a dig around. And the Fishmonger's Square is where they not only saw the wind blown for the first time, a specific act in the market that you might want to remember for later in this chapter as well. 
This news is welcomed by Tyrion, for the common room of the merchant's house is huge yet shadowy and with hundreds of tiny teeny places to hide or do secret deals. So he figures that will work to his advantage because he still believes the crew of the Shy Maid will surely be heading here and he will be saved and rescued and have these damned chains taken away. So again, he's letting slip his affection for the group, even if it is wrapped up in his own self-serving as well. He wants the three men to come, two of them knights remember, and save him. But beyond that, he clearly wants to be among them again. You can't hide it from us, Tyrion, as much as you might try. Of course, readers, even first-timers, know that this is folly. The crew of the Shy Maid aren't turning up, so both of Tyrion's assumptions are wrong. And the ironic part of it is, of course, it's his own fault. His desire to meddle in the larger affairs of Westeros to get a kick out of it has unknowingly been successful. Not that we can confirm John Connington would come here at the right time or do anything if he did anyway, but Tyrion has made sure he won't due to the ideas he planted in young Aegon's mind, due to the way he manipulated him. He got the invasion he wanted, but he doesn't get to be a part of that or of the crew of the Shy Maid. It's nice to see him hopeful and motivated for once, as well as patient, even if we know it's wrongly placed. Still, circumstances take on the task of lowering Tyrion's mood, and they do it very effectively when he's not just taken to a less than luxurious room, but finds he's going to be chained up there like a pet and left. Throwing memories of the Eerie, another time his freedom was taken away from him and death was a constant threat, and you definitely have a mood slayer. When Joran moves to leave, and Tyrion can't persuade him to rethink the chaining, he decides to try his luck by not only identifying Sir Jorah, but laying his own crimes at his feet. Specifically, being a man of Varys, all bought and paid for, in the hopes that this creates a bond between them, seeing as Varys played a part in Tyrion's fortunes too. Unfortunately, he is wrong in this, as Jorah hates being reminded of his relationship with Varys. Why? Because he knows he was massively in the wrong, and his choices cost him Daenerys. But like with earlier, he only wants to deny that, such as his pathetic claim that just because he got paid by Varys and got orders from Varys and did what Varys said, that didn't make him his creature. Heh. <laughs> you tried that shit back in Storm, Jorah. It didn't work then, it's not going to work now. Stubborn denial and refusal to take responsibility. The Jorah Mormon story. Besides, unfortunately for Tyrion, Jorah actually has left his job at Varys Incorporated and followed a different path now, the one that Tyrion assumes leads to Cersei but actually goes somewhere very different. With Jorah gone, Tyrion does his best to get out of his chains. His mind tells him straight away it's a futile effort, but of course, of course he has to try. Anyone would do the same. Any chance to free yourself from this kind of bondage and torture, well, you would take the slimmest shot at such, wouldn't you? So Tyrion does the same until he's bleeding and cramping. No escape this time and no comfort either. He's in an awful position, physically and otherwise. That all leaves him with nothing to do but look out the window at the activity of Volantis. He sees an example of pretty much everything we've seen in the city go past in Fishmonger Square below. You've got all the players, and the city is as buzz now as it was earlier. There's even a soundtrack with some woman's sad song. And perhaps due to his current predicament, Tyrion notices a slave this time. One who has stood holding a lamp over the vast table for two freedmen. Yes, a human lamp just stood there. A breathing piece of furniture. One existence. That message of lowered status is doubled down on when Jorah returns with ale and food. Jorah flings a piece of duck at him, the chains hamper Tyrion, he gets hit in the face with the thing, and then he has to crawl along on the floor to eat it with his hands. How far he's fallen. It wasn't that long ago he was being wined and dined by Illyro, never mind going back to his days in Westeros. So the general theme of falling continues. Whilst weighing whether his tankard would be enough to either kill Jorah, or at least make him angry enough to kill Tyrion, natural curiosity is allowed to take over again, as he asks Jorah what's going on out in the city. It turns out these elections we've heard so much of are now in full swing. They are three days into the ten-day affair, and the whole city is involved. That's why we earlier saw an elephant full of women shouting about Malakwo, the jugglers in the square below, a form of Fezzo. Alios has also sent slave girls out into the city, and so on and so forth. And Jorah points out this is all with relatively few voters residing in this part of the city, so imagine what it looks like back on the east side. 
and I can't let it go past us without noting that there are elephants with messages paid on this side. So if you happen to live in my country and remember the whole Brexit thing, that bit is going to stick out to you. I'm not bitter, I'm not bitter at all. Tyrion and Jorah then go into semi-serious analysis of this form of government. Ten days of merriment and having your vote bought seems like very good fun to Tyrion, and we can imagine the kind of exploits he might have had with something like this back in his power days of Clash. Tyrion plus elections does seem to be a rather interesting matchup. And I did happen to read Republic of Thieves recently, so maybe that's why it's sticking out to me. But while he admires the process to get there, he's not fond of the end result. Three rulers reigning side by side. Tyrion uses the example of he and his siblings, which, true, would be horrific. Even if on paper they would each provide a skill to offset the other, if they weren't also messed up. Much like I argued the Baratheon brothers could have done back in the day. But the true irony in this is that Westeros essentially did have this once when the Targaryens originally came to town. Aegon won the Seven Kingdoms with his sister, and ruled so after as well, aside from Rhaenys obviously dying relatively early. If the land had been a little more open-minded and progressive, they might have realised that earlier on, but because they were so stuck in the mould of, no, we need a single guy at the top, because that's how it's always been, Aegon was presented as the lone ruler instead of the shared. Alas alarms, I suppose. Jorah puts in that the rule of three doesn't always work and sometimes results in blood, but let's give them their due. They've never had a boy ruling them just because of what his surname is. They might have elected madmen, but at least they were chosen, and he theoretically always has two to counteract him anyway. Restos has never had that protection, and it has suffered on multiple occasions because of it. Volantis, or this part of the world in general, believe themselves further advanced than Westeros, and in a lot of ways, it's pretty hard to argue. Having elected rulers, for example, that's a pretty big damn advancement, isn't it? Then again, this part of the world is still mired in slavery, so pick your poison, I guess. Tyrion senses that Jorah is talking a lot more freely than so far on their journey, perhaps because he's already on the dregs of his tankard, and thinks to exploit that by asking Jorah how he knows so much about Volantis. What follows is mostly information we've already had for ages, about him first coming to Essos with the Ness and what happened there, although I do like the beginning, when Stark drove me into exile. Deflecting yet again. Not, I fucked up and got myself exiled, or I put myself in exile, it was all Eddard Stark's fault, and we conveniently miss out Jorah's own crimes. Again, it's the Jorah Mormont way. Anyway, we know the story of Ness in Lys and what happened, but I don't think Jorah has particularly mentioned coming to Volantis for a year before. Whether that holds any significance or played a role in his recruitment, or is just a handy footnote for providing us with some facts here, I don't know. But it's ironic that even back then, Jorah came here a step ahead of slavery, he says, where rereaders know how close he is to it now he's here again. As with before, when Tyrion mentions home and intentions, Jorah stays quiet and leaves Tyrion to wonder as he rolls over to sleep. You have your crimes to answer for, Jorah moment, the dwarf thought. Yeah, got that damn right. That leaves Tyrion with nothing to think on except pain. The pain of trying to sit in any comfortable way with these chains being attached to the wall as they are. And it does sound an incredibly rough experience, but it also has him thinking of pain that he's caused now that he has experienced so much himself. First comes Tywin, because of course it's Tyrion. But he also finally, finally thinks of Shay and the pain he caused her as he throttled her. Unfortunately, the introspection doesn't go any further than that, but still, at least he's actually thinking of it for once. He also thinks of Tysha, which resolutely was not his fault, of course, but again, still. And at least he has the awareness to realise as much as these chains might hurt him now, it's easier than what the three of them went through. Unfortunately, no thoughts are given to the Sunset Girl from his last chapter. I suppose we can't have it all, can we? On the subject of pain, Tyrion wonders if he could actually inflict any on his captor. Hmm, likely not. So what about escape? Well, that would only be a marginal improvement. Without the protection of the Shy Maid, he'd be alone in this new world, without his name or the coin that comes with it. And it's moot anyway, because all of those choices would require getting out of these chains, and out of these chains, he ain't getting. 
So Tyrion does eventually fall into a painful sleep, which turns out to be even more painful upon waking the next morning. We've seen Tyrion and his cramps many times before, but never quite this bad, too terrible for him to actually walk. Unfortunately, you don't get a day off from slavery, and it merely results in him having to be carried along by his chains like a handbag, just to add to his misery and embarrassment. Luckily, they're not going far, only down to the common room that does actually sound pretty cool now we see it in daylight. A dim labyrinth of alcoves and grottos, built around a central courtyard where a trellis of flowering vines through intricate patterns across the flagstone floor and green and purple moss grew between the stones. Yeah, pretty nice, I like it. Nice aesthetics, nice place for countless deals and plots like we thought earlier. On their way through though, Tyrion sees a fellow dwarf, not so different in looks to him, and the dwarf sees him back. There is recognition in his eyes, and Tyrion wisely sees the danger in that. Danger he tries to warn Jorah about, but of course, the knight sees no danger in a mere dwarf, and completely ignores the warnings, because why should he be worried? What could this person do? Well, it won't take us too long to find out, but for now, he, quote-unquote, is forgotten. For all his woes, at least Tyrion is treated to a nice breakfast from his captor, including locusts, ironically, just to give us a little nod to later plots. Speaking of such tiny notes, Tyrion mistaking an elephant for Iliomopatis is another quite good one. Tyrion wolfs down his little feast, which is a good idea because who knows when he'll have such delights again. Well, re-readers know this is pretty much the last time, but he also keeps a weather eye on the horizon, or door in this case. Jorah is smart enough to notice, but Tyrion keeps it casual. You never know who the wind might blow in. My one true love, my father's ghost, a duck. Some more subtlety there for us to enjoy, but in fairness, this isn't a large stretch for Tyrion. They are sat in the largest inn, the hub of this side of the city, and last he heard the Shy Maid was making for Volantis. And as we discussed in last week's John Connington chapter, Tyrion knows that he knows valuable information, stuff that John Con will not want spread even if we're forgetting Tyrion's original value at being helpful to the mission as defined by Illyro. So if they spot him, they'll grab him for whichever reason. If Hald and Halfmaester walks through that door, well that's not great, but at least he'll report to the others. If Duck or Griff, or better yet, both of them come through the door, there might be blades and blood, but you'd have to think there's every chance that either of them could best draw and free Tyrion, and especially, again, if they double-team him. So hope, a rare quality in Tyrion chapters, lives on. For a paragraph, anyway. And then there's this. Last night, the talk here was all of Westeros. Some exiled lord has hired the Golden Company to win back his lands for him. Half the captains in Volantis are racing upriver to Volonferris to offer him their ships. Tyrion had just swallowed another locust. He almost choked on it. Nah. Uh, so much for hope. Just like that, the possibility of rescue has been snuffed out. Tyrion does try to hang on to it for just a minute. Maybe Jorah is just getting a rise out of him. Maybe Griff is spreading false reports to lure enemies into a false sense of security. But the truth seeps out. Unless. Could the pretty princeling have swallowed the bait? Turned them west instead of east? Abandoning his hopes of wedding Queen Daenerys? Abandoning the dragons? Would Griff allow that, Tyrion thought? The irony returns. Tyrion sealed off his own escape by playing with the fortunes of others for nothing more than a cheap laugh and the off chance of hurting Cersei. Karmic justice, you might say. Tyrion semi-confirms here that the story he sold Aegon was never really meant to be accepted. He was just telling him that because he could, because he was revelling in the ability to control a minute play again. He liked the power of it all. Besides, there was that real chance of hurting Cersei, which means so much to him. And the fact he claimed he didn't care about any potential results anyway. Well, now he certainly does. He's also forgetting his earlier conclusion that it would have been really bad for Aegon to have come this way thanks to the Red Priests. But who cares about that now, that it means something bad for Tyrion? He also wonders if Griff would actually choose to abandon the dragons, hinting how highly he values them for Aegon's chances, and shows what he thinks of those chances now that they've followed his own advice. 
twice. Is there any guilt or self-realization about what he's done? No, of course not, not yet. He's still worried about his own circumstances. He does a semi-decent job of hiding his worry behind his tankard, but he is definitely worried. Again, he tries convincing himself that this is a ploy. The Shy-Maid crew are still coming, of course they are, and they have an army at their back, and he'll be rescued and everything will be fine. Though even he can't keep that up. This is bad, very, very bad. For him, maybe for Aegon, maybe even for Daenerys. But who cares about Targs when the lion is in trouble? Let's not ignore how this news must sound to Jorah as well. An exiled lord returning home to claim his lands with a grand army. Well, that's everything Jorah ever wanted, wasn't it? Perhaps he's even thought of joining them. He's just said all the captains are rushing to pledge their service. He could hop aboard one of them, pledge himself to the Golden Company, and there you go. He fits their brand, he gets a free left home, and his life mission is a lot closer to completion. The only thing it'd require is the abandonment of Daenerys and that just ain't gonna happen. His obsession with her is too strong. And no, apologies, but I refuse to call it affection or love or any of that. This is not some grand gesture of Jorah giving up his dream to help Daenerys. It's obsession, creepy obsession, and nothing more. A distraction comes when Jorah is summoned to the Widow, and Tyrion realises there's an appointment they're supposed to be keeping. Jorah gives us the backstory. The Widow was a former slave who was married to Vagaro, a pretty competent triarch who built himself such an empire that he could free a slave girl and marry her without apparent retribution, save for general scandal and gossip. He died, obviously, giving her nickname, and she took on his little empire even if she had to move it over to the western side of the city because even freed slaves are considered a step beneath those who dwell within the Black Wall. Ever since, she's set herself up in the merchant's house, using her considerable wealth and influence to help people out and more importantly keep everything running within a sphere of control as we'll see. It's an interesting little tale. I don't know if we can really take too much from the backstory itself although it is a little similar to Illyro's tale of how he got himself a wife but we don't have to wait too long to find out more as the time of Jorah's appointment arrives and we know if there's anything to stop Tyrion dwelling on his fortune it's curiosity so he gets that satisfied here. So approach the pair do, and Tyrion notes that this woman is no joke from the start. She has scars where tear tattoos have been cut away, and that's probably enough to tell you how serious she is, but on top we get her well-chosen spot in the common room. The one that doesn't allow for anyone to sneakily approach from behind, gives a great view of who is coming and going, allows for a cheeky getaway if necessary, and keeps her not only hidden, but gives an air of mystique and power. You can't really ask for more of a spot in this common room, can you? And add in these leaves and vines that really give the impression of a sort of oasis in this part of the world that is so hot and often associated with dragons, and it really is quite the setting. This is where we find that Jorah's shopping trip along the bridge was not for Daenerys at all, he tricked us in that regards. It was for the widow as he gives some gloves for his gift. Very nice, but not really compared to the others she's received that morning alone. And yes, my headcanon absolutely states that this ancient bronze dagger marked with runes comes from the north and the first men, you shall not convince me otherwise. The widow is not super impressed with the gloves, yet the fact seems to go over Jorah's head somewhat, maybe hinting at what his marriage to Lyness was like all those years ago. Not that that matters to Tyrion, because something way more important has come up. We need swift passage to Marine. One word. Tyrion Lannister's world turned upside down. One word. Marine. Or had he misheard? One word. Marine. He said Marine. He's taking me to Marine. Marine meant life. Or hope for life, at least. Realisation finally comes, yet Tyrion is a bit slow on the uptake this time round. His assumptions about Cersei and certain death were wrong. He's actually going the complete opposite way. He's in fact going where he was supposed to originally in terms of trying to reach Daenerys. And it occurs to him that if he'd just kept his bloody mouth shut, he'd be travelling the same way as Griff and Aegon and all the others. Oh, it was all too much. Plots within plots. But all roads lead down the dragon's gullet. A guffaw burst from his lips and suddenly Tyrion could not stop laughing. Yeah, Tyrion actually uses the word hope and his near giddiness at the prospect is probably surprising even to him. Maybe it was going into his deepest depths in Selhoris. Maybe it's the short time he spent in chains. Tyrion's outlook has clearly changed. He wants to live. He's excited at the prospect. Something in his self-conscious is stirring. 
there's a point again, there is hope. So this is a pretty major moment in his personal development and potential recovery of soul. That doesn't mean he's out of danger. He's still in chains, it's still a damn dangerous journey to Marine, they would have much rather undertaken with the Gold Company, and there's a pretty far cry between being presented to Daenerys as an advisor and potential helper to her taking of Westeros as a part of a team, and being dragged before her in chains as a present. This might still end in his death, there's just a larger possibility that it doesn't. The road home seems short, whereas Marine still seems half a world away, an unknown world with unknown possibilities. And let's not bypass the idea that even if it does end in his death, Tyrion would way rather die by Danny's hand than giving Cersei any sort of satisfaction. The Widow repeats our question from earlier, wouldn't Jorah rather go west with the rest of them? So we at least learn that Jon Con's instincts were right and Volantis does want to help with shipping them out of there, so at least we know the journey is beginning even if this is the last time we really hear of it. Why go east then? The Widow asks. Whatever the reason, the Widow confirms that while she sees through the bullshit rumours about Daenerys, she also knows how many enemies that Danny has around her, and how the fleets of Volantis will soon join them once the election is finished, as apparently Malakwo and Nyasos are fully bought into the idea, and any number of thirds will complete the decision. Jorah, stubborn as he is, does not like being told that his hope of Denethos being re-elected is for none. Volantis will sail against Daenerys, likely sooner rather than later. In amongst this conversation that Tyrion has listened to is another, one that makes him turn around and see that the dwarf that he saw earlier is still staring and still likely dangerous. He even seems somewhat familiar. So George is keeping that tension raised throughout this conversation with the Widow, because let's face it, we're pretty far into this chapter and not a whole lot has happened plot-wise, so we need something to keep us going, and this is a classic George hint of something happening at some point. But the Widow is still talking for now, this time informing us of how Volantis has let itself down. In the olden days, it recognised the need for ability, not gender, in its leaders, and they flourished because of it. Some, like this Triana that she mentioned, was able to pull them out of the filth and put them on the map. Since then, though, women have been disallowed from election, and only a few women get to even make a vote. So while the general democratic process is better here than in Westeros, let's not act like they've got it all figured out. So the Widow has two rather large grudges. The city has turned its back on women, and also does not allow anyone who has been freed the same benefits that those who are free from birth receive. Both clearly apply to her, and she's not best pleased about it. And what do you think? Sir Jorah asked. Good, Fort Tyrion. The right question. Oh, I think it will be war as well, but not the war they want. The old woman leaned forward, her black eyes gleaming. I think that Red Relor has more worshippers in this city than all the gods put together. So we finally get some confirmation of our theories about the Red Priests becoming a force unto themselves at some point. This city is in trouble, and it's about to get a whole lot worse. And the state not only know it, they know they have no way to defend it, given that their own slave soldiers worship the Red Priests. This is something they cannot defend against, as we see with Malakwo apparently trying to hire the Golden Company to take out the Red Temple and Bonero. So this is absolutely going to come to a head at some point, I'm convinced. This will come to blood, and Volantis is super, super going to suffer. So maybe those thoughts of Danny burning Volantis that we had a few episodes ago are unfounded. She might get here and find that a war has already been fought and won in her name. This tale, and everything else the Widow has said, goes right over Jorah's head. Of course it does, he's an idiot. He's a rock completely devoid of empathy or care for anyone else. Jorah Mormont genuinely is one of the most shut-off characters in the series. He doesn't understand other people at all, and he doesn't care that he doesn't. Fool, thought Tyrion. It's not coin she wants, it's respect. Haven't you heard a word that she said? See, Tyrion gets it. Not that it's a particularly hard message to uncover from the Widow here. This is a woman denied power and prestige who wants it. She's carved out some, but there's always more. Unfortunately, Tyrion doesn't have time to mention this because the dwarf from earlier has crept nearer and now there's a knife in his hand, so the tension is rising, rising. But we also have Jorah Mormont being put in his place, which we absolutely have to adore and focus on. The Widow becomes a fan favourite right here. No, Jorah, you can't just scowl at the world and expect it to jump into line. No one cares how angry you are. This isn't your world, you don't control it, so shut up and pipe down for once. 
and she hilariously hints otherwise he'll wind up as a slave, which is another nice nod for rereaders. Jewel Mormon only understands the one language, so the widow speaks it by bringing out her widow's sons to stand as her muscle, and asks the question again, why seek Daenerys Targaryen? Jorah gives his answer, one we likely could have guessed if we'd been asked beforehand, and in his head he probably thinks it sounds quite noble, which it would do if anyone other than Jorah Mormon was saying it, but in response, the widow laughs in his face. Well, we've got to love this woman. And this is where she becomes much, much more interesting, because she reveals she knows exactly who Tyrion is, as well as his long list of crimes. Although she does call him Turncloak, which isn't actually a word he gets thrown at him a lot. Is he a Turncloak? He didn't betray a cause when he killed Joffrey, supposedly, or Tywin. It wasn't a political thing he tried to cover up. I suppose it technically is right, it just doesn't sound quite right to me. But anyway, the idea is, how does she know this? How does she know it's Tyrion? Is an educated guest? as there have been spies watching him already, all of that's possible. At the least, this is evidence of her reach and power. But I also wonder, is it a hint to something more? Is it possible that the widow is, actually, Quaif? Hmm, bear with me. I don't normally spend a lot of time on the who is who mysteries of the series, I never find them that interesting. But I must admit this idea is pretty intriguing to me. It certainly fits, the widow knows a lot. And I should say here, I haven't looked this up, maybe someone's debunked it, maybe someone's proved it, for all I know, I, again, I don't really look at the theories. So forgive me if you've heard this one already, but let me go through it a minute. Again, like I say, it fits. The widow knows a lot. She is rich and powerful. She has a connection to Bonero and what he sees in the fires. So it's not that hard to imagine her with a glass candle or using the temples if they have one maybe. Perhaps Bonero looks in the fire and sees these warnings, tells them to the widow and she appears to Daenerys and maybe other people as well to try and guide her. The mask would also make sense. The widow is pretty recognisable with those tear scars you would think and Bonero already looks like he wears a mask. And again, they seem to be Daenerys supporters who would want her to be more Targaryen-y and into her dragons, so that tracks. Now again, I, I haven't written notes on this, so this is just occurring to me now, so I'm not really sure how this fits in with, with Quaith's former advice. Does that actually track of getting her to Volantis? Hmm, maybe not. Bottom line, I've got no idea who Quaith is. I don't think any of us do. It's just an intriguing idea. Anyway, but I'll leave it there. Besides all that, Tyrion gives his answer to the same question, which is apparently he'll do anything if it ends up with him being allowed to take revenge on Tom Cersei. And yes, unfortunately, he has to include the threat of sexual violence in there as well. So no, he's learned nothing from his previous chapter or this newfound desire to live. He is still very much messed up and more than that, a little bit evil. The widow, who said the name Lannister like a curse, so I'm not sure how that might fit into the Quaife thing and why either she or the widow would hate Lannisters, changes her mind a little bit because at least Tyrion is being honest whereas Jorah is not. She's been dressing him down the whole time, but now delivers the kicker. Men are beasts, selfish and brutal. However gentle the words, there are always darker motives underneath. I do not trust you, sir. She flicked them off with her fan, as if they were no more than flies buzzing about her head. If you want to get to Marine, swim. I have no help to give you. Yeah, fuck you, Jorah Mormon, take that. The widow is dead on the money in her assessment, and he even borrows one of Jorah's own lines about men being beasts to really put the nail in the coffin. That's exactly what he's like, and we love to see it. But Jorah just had enough of tension raising. He's made his wait this long, now it's the time for something to happen. And so it does, all at once. Jorah is rising, the widow's son is moving forward, but the true danger comes from behind, as the dwarf Tyrion has been watching all day darts forward with a knife. And all Tyrion has time to do is think of this. Oh, she's a girl. That's right, everybody. Here comes Penny. No one comes to Tyrion's aid because he's a slave, so why would you? He's got chains, don't you know, and we don't help slaves. That, and it's a fairly surprising scene that none of them were expecting to see on this morning, I suppose. Which leaves Tyrion having to defend himself, all while chained. The best he can do is a flagon of water in the face and falling out of the way of the knife, and even that winds up with Penny atop him, knife in hand, and ready to strike. It is only Jorah Mormont's intervention that saves Tyrion, and that's only because he doesn't want his presence of Daenerys ruined. 
The whole affair leaves an utterly bewildered Tyrion lying on the floor, wondering why in the world he was nearly killed by the world's most unlikely assassin. So the truth comes out. This girl was seeking vengeance for the brother killed in Tyrion's place. Sailors from Westeros saw them jousting in Fishmonger Square, just as Quentin did, and either decided it was Tyrion or someone who looked enough like Tyrion to fool Cersei. So they killed him, removed his head, and went to Westeros. And here the stories of Feast return to us. We've seen the same crime many times. Perhaps the one that stands up most to us is the Septon that Brienne meets in Duskendale that suffered this same fate of dying merely because he was a male dwarf. And we really like that guy, so that was a rough one. So the whole thing suddenly clicks for Tyrion. They saw us jousting in the square. He knew who the girl was then. Did you ride the pig? He asked her. Or the dog? The dog, she sobbed. Oppo always rode the pig. The dwarfs from Joffrey's wedding. It was their show that started all the trouble that night. How strange to encounter them again half a world away. Indeed, he's right. How strange the fates are that Tyrion should not only encounter someone he's met once before on one of the most important days of his life, but they should meet her after her life had already been totally ruined because of an after effect that came about because of the events that happened on that same day, if you follow me. Strange indeed. You'll note that Tyrion believes that Penny and Oppo started all the trouble that eventually led to Joffrey's murder, which is a harsh assessment. Everything was already well prepared for Joffrey's death, and Tyrion likely would have been blamed even if the pair had never performed and that whole argument had happened between Tyrion and Joffrey. The tension between them was already established on concrete, it didn't need any help. Penny and Oppo didn't do anything that they shouldn't have. They didn't plan it or even really place themselves in that situation. It was Peter Baelish, fucking Peter Baelish, who added that little detail onto top of his already copious plans. As of all things, the blame should lie with him. Look how far his misery giving stretches, all the way to this side of the world as well, we can't escape. So it's unfair for Tyrion to blame Penny, and it's kind of unfair for her to blame Tyrion, even if it is a lot more understandable. It isn't Tyrion's fault that Oppo has died because they bear resemblance, though we can again see why Penny makes that connection, because it seems like Tyrion willingly committed the acts of which he is accused, thereby resulting in Cersei's ruling and getting innocent dwarves killed. That part does have some merit, but what we must always remember is that Cersei is the true evil here. She's the one who gave the order, she's the one who ridiculously jacked up the price, so almost any man would be tempted to take the chance should he spile any male dwarf. The fault lies at her feet. But Cersei ain't here, Tyrion is. And Penny is distraught. She's wounded. Of course she is. She and her brother somehow carved out an existence for themselves in an incredibly harsh world, and it was taken away by something that neither of them had any part in. There was no justice in it whatsoever. Oppo was viciously murdered in the hopes that he could be sold, and Penny lost half her world, the only person she could ever trust or connect with, because of the person in front of her now. Indirectly, sure, but still. There's a lot we have to talk about with Penny, but I'm going to save it for next time when we get a bit of a clearer picture of her. We've already been going long on Tyrion talk today, so we'll save that, but I mean, we know she's pretty major. And Penny, understandably overcome with emotion, feebly cries out for someone to just kill Tyrion if she can't, because what else is there in her world apart from this? It's one thing to have your brother killed because he looks like someone else, but then to have your face rubbed in it by that someone else appearing in front of you, walking, talking, living and breathing. Sure, he's got chains on. I'm going to bet that Penny would trade dead Oppo for chained Oppo 101 times out of 100. Luckily, the widow is on hand to help poor Penny, who was taken off to her rooms for a drink and new clothes. That's probably the largest random act of kindness that Penny's ever received. At the same time, she chastises Jorah for not fulfilling his nightly duties, because as she well knows, Jorah only helps the ones who look like Daenerys. And that's because he's a creep, isn't it? And he's a rubbish knight, actually. Due to him being over in Essos, Jorah has mostly escaped the many discussions we've had over what it means to be a knight. Those have mainly happened in conjunction to Sandor, to Jaime, Brienne, even Bran sometimes. But applying those ideals, we must remember that Jorah Mormont comes up woefully short. Again, I say, he is rubbish. Out of all the confusion, 
the widow makes a new decision. She will help Tyrion after all. And let's make it clear, she's intending to help Tyrion, not Jorah. He just happens to be a byproduct. It's Tyrion she's actually talking to now, which I'm sure annoys Jorah no end. What is it about this interaction that changed her mind? I'm not really sure, but the decision does appear to be made. Although she still will not take his chains from him, even if he contends that he's not a slave. Her response is basically, well, you are. You wear the chains, and that's all that's needed to make a slave. Besides, as readers know, we're not too far from that truly becoming reality anyway, so maybe she knows more than she's letting on. Either way, she tells them of the Selassie Koran, and how they can get to Marine upon it, even if it's supposed to be going to Kaf. The widow already knows Benero has seen it in his fires, they will not reach Kaf, so the two of them must be really strong partners if she has this level of knowledge about his visions. She also mentions a red priest is going with them, one who readers know to be Mokoro, another incredibly interesting character who's going to have some very big moments later in the book, and is supposed to be an envoy to Daenerys herself which means you'd likely think incapable of delivering the message that the Widow entrusts to Tyrion, again, not Jorah, Tyrion, instead, because she can sense future importance, perhaps he's appeared in his fires, we don't know. Whichever, the message reads like this. Should you reach your queen? Give her a message from the slaves of old Volantis. She touched the faded scar upon her wrinkled cheek where her tears had been cut away. Tell her we are waiting. Tell her to come soon. Boom. There you go. What a fantastic culmination of everything we've said, I don't know, a hundred times already in every chapter we've had in this area. There is going to be some kind of slave rebellion for Daenerys. The Red Priests are going to declare for her. Free men and women of note will be on her team. There's going to be upheaval and blood and chaos. All these things that we keep predicting are almost certain to come true in some form. Danny has friends in high places, in cities that still lie in her path. There can't be anything but exciting for her future arc. If only she could just hurry up and get Damarine out of the way. A change is coming upon the world. Dragons might lead it, but there are other forces at play as well. The plot is thickening. The chain reaction started in Slaver's Bay, sure, but it's still going strong and it's still going to have major effects upon the world. It really does get us going. So there you go, that is the end of the longest chapter in the book. And yeah, I've got to say it does feel pretty long to me. I'm not a massive fan of that chapter. Some of Tyrion's arc does stall out for me a bit. I think some of his uh, coming chapters have a bit of that vibe as well, but hey, maybe you like them. They're still great chapters, they're just not quite for me. Especially when we have some, like, John coming up with this way better. But, either way, big milestone moment. He's on another path. He's on a path that's going to be even more changing to his life, more than what's already happened to him, if you can believe it. And, like I said, we'll get a lot more talk on Penny. We'll see Jorah Mormont get over more comeuppance, which is kind of cool, kind of sad in some ways. And we'll get ever closer to Marine and what the hell the Bat of the Fire is going to look at. Yes, because Tyrion is going to be there. So, with that all done... Let's close that one. Let's move on to a much shorter chapter. Let's go on to John 6. After working through that gigantic chapter, George now gives us a bit of a rest with one of his much shorter John chapters, which actually makes two in a row for him. It's been a fair while since we've been with John and at the Wall especially, given that we were mainly at Molestown last time. So we get now to take a much better look at the post-Stannis Castle Black and how John is handling it. Really, we get the whole John experience throughout this chapter because we're going to talk about an awful lot. There is a lot packed in here, right up from the nitty gritty logistics that we always like to the wider questions of magic and mysticism. And even more exploratory is what we get from John's soul, his actual emotions, because we go through the range, the emotional range in this one, from highs and lows and just about everything in between. It's a superb examination of John the leader and John the person and how those two identities both merge and conflict with each other. 
we'll see John think large, John think small, John think of himself, and John think of others. The spectrum here in John 6 is really quite unlike anything else, and the content we get is simply superb, which I'm going to prove to you in a second. I must admit, I really, really do like this chapter. Hopefully, you'll agree with me by the end. Like I say, we're going to touch on multiple subjects. The problems of ruling the wall, trying to keep men in line, keeping them on side, what Melisandre is up to, like we mentioned in the intro as well as our good old friend, Temptation. And some guilt in there as well, because what would be a John chapter without guilt, would it? I think actually, I'm not even going to delay any further. Let's get past the intro. Let's get going, shall we? We open with a factor of Castle Black that we haven't really had to think about at all in dance, Alice of Thorn, and he's kind of died out as a character or plot thread. He was obviously major in Game of Thrones, and at least showed up at the end of Storm, as well as a little bit in Clashdown and King's Landing. But so far in Dance, aside from one tense moment just prior to Janos Slint's execution, we haven't had to think about the former Master at Arms at all. But we do now, because John has made the executive decision that the gates will not be sealed, sorry Bowen Marsh, and we will continue ranging for all the reasons that John has laid out before. And you are going out there to do just that, Sir Alistair. Now, Alistair, somewhat fairly, believes this is a punishment, or a death sentence at least, and he's not happy about it. Now, there's logic in that. They all know that there are hundreds of wildlings, maybe thousands, still out there in the woods, even more hate-filled towards crows than usual. And, of course, much worse waits in the shadows anyway. Bowen Marsh will have done a very good job, I'm sure, at pushing those rumours and the dangers of keeping that gate open or sending men out into the forest, hoping that popular opinion might have swayed John. So it's no surprise that Alistair is taking that side of things. And again, they aren't wrong, they are out there, these problems are real. We're going to see just how right they are, in fact, later on. So Alistair is fairly pissed. John maintains this isn't about punishment or personal grudges, it's about best foot forward, using people in the most effective way, and Alistair fits that mould given his former position and life as a knight. He's a fighter, and we need fighters out there, so off you go. So in some ways, John is being complimentary here at the start, though he's really just stating fact as justification. Not that he really needs justification. This isn't a persuasion, it's not a negotiation, it's an order. And, as Alistair himself notes, refusal would only mean execution and death. So while we're here reading this and kind of skipping around and inside our hearts and going, haha, yes, fuck you, Alistair off you go. John is being a bit more grown up and mature than we are as readers and saying, look, no, no, this is actually for a reason. I'm not just abusing my power here. But Alistair tries to claim that his hated years as master at arms won't be useful out there in the world. To which John replies, well, don't worry, others will be with you. So he's switched from complimentary to kind of implying that Alistair is maybe perhaps scared of the woods and the wildlings and needs someone to hold his hand. So multiple tactics from John here to show his growing negotiation skills, even though, again, this is anything but. The men that are going with him, well, Dywin is going with him, but we also have Kedge Whiteye and Blackjack Bulwer heading up their own parties. They make fun of Alistair, especially for his being highborn, and it's clear that John isn't sending Alistair out with any of his formerly pro-slent cronies. He'll be with people who aren't going to listen to his mutuous mutterings or moanings. So that's smart by John to isolate and freeze the problem that is Alistair Fawn. He can't spread his negativity, he can't build up a rebellion or anything now. And it's also fun for us because we know that he's going to get the minimum possible enjoyment from this mission by not being with people who are friends or even think along the same lines as him. He's going to have to put up with loads of pro-John talk while he's out there, which I'm sure he'll hate. So, Alistair accepts in the end. Not really got a choice, is he? He'd rather be killed by a wildling than give John the satisfaction, he says. So, okay, fair enough. For the most part, I don't think the reader minds how he dies, so long as he does for all the hell he's put John through. We know he's a dick, we hate him. So it's a pretty enjoyable start to a chapter for us. And we get to indulge a bit in our personal vendettas and our thirst for revenge and all these things that we're not supposed to enjoy, but we do a little bit. So it's up to John again to take the high road and remind us of true duty here. Here's a quote. You'd best pray there's a wilding blade that kills me though. The ones that others killed don't stay dead and they remember. 
I'm coming back, Lord Snow. I pray you do. John would never count Sir Alice a fawn among his friends, but he was still a brother. No one ever said you had to like your brothers. So we've got one final threat from Sir Alice Fawn, one that may well be superb foreshadowing for all we know, but even that can't go John into an argument. Maybe you do want to kill me, Sir Alistair, but I am actually being genuine in hoping you come back alive, because I am Lord Commander now. I have left personal bullshit behind, and I am better than you, because I have the ultimate mission in mind, even if you don't. Is yet more superb leadership from John to carry on from his last chapter. It's a form of self-sacrifice, giving up his old arguments and grudges and not letting himself take any pleasure in this. He's putting things in their proper priority. We're past liking or disliking people now. Well, John is anyway. Maybe not us, but John is. And he has said that we need every man, and that means every man, no matter of the past. We can't be nitpicking. And it is also a nice little reminder from Alistair that whites have memories. It's been a very, very long time since we've really focused on whites at all, even with their brief appearance in the prologue. And this is a plot point that surely must be important in some way later on, so it's always good to be reminded. Next quote for you here. It was no easy thing to send men into the wild, knowing that the chances were good that they might never return. John further shames our rejoicing of the Alistair news by reminding us that this is zero fun for him, even if he is getting rid of an old enemy. This is the true weight of duty. In some ways, even worse than mere loss because you are choosing to possibly, even likely, send men to their deaths. You are killing them, probably, and you're using the trap of duty to do it. They can't refuse, they don't get an opinion, it's your choice. Worse still, as we'll see in a moment, some even do it with a smile on their face. They're happy to be given this assignment. So this is tough on multiple fronts. There's the pure moral dilemma of having to sacrifice men for the potential, not even the certainty, just the potential of the greater good. The fact that they are mostly men he likes and counts as brothers. And then there's the pure cold-hearted mathematics. They might be wasting some of the precious few men he does have when they have become even more valuable than ever now if you want to look at it in that view. So John tries to comfort himself that he's not sending raw recruits out there. These aren't boys. These are all veterans. The majority are rangers themselves. But that didn't save the majority of the great ranging, did it? It didn't save Benjamin Stark, whom John still views as near godlike in his skills. So why should these men fare any different? And that is a pretty fair question to ask. John even wonders now about Benjamin's fate. So we've got another very old storyline resurfacing. And you have to wonder if this is also George reminding us of old points for a specific reason. Fingers crossed they is, because we want to know about Benjamin. It's now that John gives us the finer details of how this mission will actually work. He's sending three arrowheads out into the forest, each of them made up of three men. Dywin is leading the one of Azaphorn, while Blackjack Bulwer and Kedge White Eye helm the other two. Out they will go into the forest, seeking to learn of what the wild things are doing, and if they're planning to strike again and maybe even take a few of them out. That would be handy. Basically, any information would be very much welcome at this point because they're kind of clueless. They've got no idea what's going on out there, and John needs to know. As we said, some are very keen to be doing something and putting their skills to use. Dywin, in particular, has spent the majority of his life out there in the wild and is begging to get back there again. John highlights how valuable this man is as the best ranger that Castle Black has left, so that's another boon that Alistair should be grateful for that he's going with him, but does that make it worse that we might be losing him? From high on their garrons they looked no larger than ants, and John could not tell one ranger from another. He knew them though. Every name was graven on his heart. Eight good men, he thought, and one, well we shall see. Alistair Fawn is useful as a body, and therefore valuable. Sure, we need everyone we can get. But when you can write down to it, this goes further than the duty of a Lord Commander. John does not want to have just murdered eight men who are, yeah, sure, valuable, but more importantly, are good people and don't deserve as such. This is an incredibly heavy weight on John's heart and mine, so it must be very, very stressful to constantly have to second guess and worry about what he's done and have I just killed these people and everything else. This could very easily all be for nothing as well. They could go out there, they could discover nothing, or even worse, they could never come back. So George provides us with this rather beautiful quote on how the lives of at least eight of the men are really going to stick with John. This isn't a weight he's going to be able to shake. 
at all. And as re-readers, unfortunately, we know the tragedy that awaits. So let's take a moment here to remind ourselves of just who the watch is losing. Alice the Fawn, we already know about, and we can look at whether that's a positive or negative through our own lens. On one hand, he is a veteran fighter and would be very useful if having to fight the Wildlings or the others, if he stayed at the war I'm talking about. In theory, anyway. In reality, it's been decades since he's actually had to fight anyone, so who knows what his actual skills are like now, and you can easily make the argument he'd actually be a detriment in battle by undermining John or trying his best to make him look bad, or maybe even outright betraying him. We don't really know. We do know if he'd remained in Castle Black to the end of the book, it's very likely he would have got involved in Beaumarsh's plot, if not started his own much sooner. Now you can make the argument that he's really dedicated to the Night's Watch and wouldn't have done anything that goes against the vows, but I think maybe that's being a bit influenced by the show here. We don't get quite as much of that impression from the book version, or at least I don't. So if we add it all up, it really is a plus for John, making his decision to isolate him and possibly save other brothers from becoming anti-John or organising in any way. That makes it look even more politically smart, doesn't it? We also have Daiwan and his famous wooden teeth, and that is a major loss. So much of this book is about the new watch, how almost all the old heads and the cast we were originally introduced to have gone, whether via death or John sending them away. And Daiwan is the latest casualty in that sense. This is a man who was present right back when John originally swore his vows. He was part of the Great Ranging, he survived the Fist, he was an ally to Sam's tale of killing another, he supported him in that, before also surviving the mutiny and making it back home as well. So he's a resourceful guy. A lot of men did not achieve that. He's incredibly skilled and knowledgeable, and basically he's made of good stuff. And John has just sent him out, maybe to die. We never hear from him again in this book, so we don't know. And this is where we do have to question whether John's policy of sending out all of the veterans to various places and ones that are close to him is a good idea. Basically, is kill the boy helpful or harmful? Now, I tried my best to portray John as a really strong leader in the first third of this book because I think that's absolutely true and it's not a particularly hard task, to be honest. It's pretty clear to me that he's a brilliant leader, but I'll admit, I've always found the kill the boy idea, as John takes it anyway, there is a difference perhaps between what Eamon was saying and what John heard, but I've always found it bad strategy. If you even want to listen to it at all, sending away a few should suffice, not everybody. But John is sending out almost everyone, either useful or close to him, and that's not good. He's eroding his own power base here at Castle Black until it all comes back to bite him later on when the structure of the institution has been weakened enough there's going to be complete chaos at the opening of winds. This is just going to be pandemonium. Maybe Burmarsh would have done what he does regardless of who's there, but the chance is a lot lower if there are more John friends around plus more veterans or the highly skilled to argue with him about it after or before. Perhaps the general theory is solid. I say it isn't, but maybe it is. But John has simply taken it too far. As I've outlined, it will hurt him personally. It will hurt what is left of Castle Black as a populace. They've already lost so many of their old heads. He really needs to keep a few around. And don't forget, this here isn't this final sending away of someone useful. He's going to keep doing this yet. We've not seen the end. Now, in fairness, he's in a sticky situation. There just aren't enough men to go around. And someone has to go out and range, or someone has to go and man the castles if he wants to stick to those policies. Arguing about their validity is probably best saved for another day, but we can at least see the logic in them. We know why John is trying to do these things, especially regassing the castles. And if you're sending out groups of people to live and effectively govern themselves in locations miles away from you, with very few communication links, you probably want to send someone loyal, who you trust, and who is competent as a leader. And there just aren't that many of those sort around anymore. More than likely, I'm just being salty about Gren being sent away. I'd be fine, send everyone, but keep Gren here. Then again, at least with garrisoning the castles, the risk is massively reduced. They're still behind the wall, whereas these nine he's just sent out, well, not quite. To me, the risk is just too big. But that's the difficulty of leadership, isn't it? Deciding which evil you're going to choose. 
I'm just very, very aware of how quickly the structure of Castle Black and the Night's Watch has eroded. They've lost so much of their leadership, so much of their good examples, so much of the people who understand duty and what they need to do and at the worst possible time. So spreading that even thinner and taking it away from himself, I just don't like that for John. Anyway, let's get back to who we're losing. So we've got Kedge Whiteheye, and he's another long-time character, even if not quite so long as Daiwan. He was also on the Great Ranging, and obviously he survived, although he wasn't actually pointed out to us until Storm, when he chopped off poor old Bannon's foot at Craster's Keep in an unsuccessful attempt to save his brother. He's been on the wall for 30 years and served under Foreign Smallwood, so it's undoubtedly another of the best rangers they have remaining. And finally, there is Black Jack Bulwer, who we save until last, because we know the least about him. He isn't mentioned until the battle for the wall against the wildlings, and even then, pretty sparingly. Curiously, in the appendix, he is listed as the first ranger, even though I'm pretty sure that's never actually mentioned in the text, but apparently he got a promotion at some point. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's mentioned elsewhere. So you'd think he was part of the great ranging as well, even if it isn't directly mentioned, but we aren't talking about the past this time, because Blackjack is the only one of the leaders whose fate we actually know. As we're about to learn from Melisandre later in the chapter, at least a third of these groups are doomed. Here and now, we can say, well, Mela's been wrong plenty of times before, maybe she will be again. Unfortunately, re-readers know that this time she's on the money, which is handy for persuading John of her powers, which is obviously what she wants to do later on. Blackjack and his two companions will be caught by the Weeper, beheaded, de-eyed, and left on a pole in front of the wall to mock Jon Snow and the other brothers that the Weeper is still out there. There's at least some wildlings left who are hostile and danger still exists in the forest. And I must admit, I always remembered that discovery is coming much, much later in the book in a Jon chapter, but I'm wrong. It's actually going to come next week in Melisandre's POV. So we don't have to wait long for the truth to come out at all. So we know this plan of John's is going to fail in some respects at least. Three men die. Again, at least. Who knows about the other six? and even one would be far too many in John's eyes. Along with Jack is Harry Hal, who we saw in John's last chapter and was a former guard in his door, and Garth Greyfeather, another great ranging survivor who was enlisted to shoot at Mance, quote-unquote, during its burning. So we've also lost a great archer, whose value is at its highest ever considering John's new tactics of defending the wall. That's a loss even worse than usual. And I don't want to skip ahead too much, as we're obviously going to come to this next week, but this is going to be a very, very sombre moment for the Night's Watch presence of a violent enemy, mere meters from their home and yet unseen, the incredibly violent end to their former brothers, it supremely lowers morale and comes a very bad time overall. It goes some way to worsening the stability of the men, and many will blame John. They'll say that they sent these men out needlessly and toyed with their lives, and that's bad, but not near so bad as it will hurt John himself, who asks himself these very questions of, well, did I just kill them for nothing? And we'll get the seeds of all that set right here. And that also leaves the question of what happened to the two other groups. Are they also dead? Are they being killed by the wildlings? Have they been killed by the others? Does that mean they're going to come back as whites? Or are they alive out there somewhere? We've got zero clues, but it's definitely fun to think about. I think we all assume we're at least going to see Dywin and Alice's group again at some point, or maybe hear about them at the very least. They seem too prominent as characters to ignore, especially Sir Alistair. So whether that'll be coming back to the wall in some state of life or another, whether they're found by John, because I'm pretty sure George has mentioned that we're going back above the wall in winds. So I think I'm right in saying that. Maybe Bran is going to see them or something like that. Or someone else, who can say? If they do come back as whites, that's even worse for John than their simple deaths. He's now not only weakened his side with losses, but it bolstered the enemies. God, it couldn't be any worse, could it? And there would be a certain poetic justice in Sir Alistair returning as a white, given that he was charged with alerting King's Landing to the threat originally and ultimately failed. Although through very little fault of his own, that's mainly Tyrion's fault. And you have to wonder if there's even a chance for some kind of not quite redemptive arc, but maybe just the chance to prove himself 
as a loyal brother of the Night's Watch. Maybe he fights his way back to the wall to give them important news or something of the like. Or, more interestingly, he lives long enough to hear of Aegon or even Daenerys, the Targaryens he fought for once returned again. That would be very interesting, I think. But that's all in the future. Let's get back to today, with Jon heading back down the wall after watching his men leave, and even Ed Tillet and his dreams can't cheer him up. I had a frightening dream last night, my lord, Dolores Ed confessed. You were my steward, fetching my food and cleaning up my leavings. I was Lord Commander, with never a moment's peace. John did not smile. Your nightmare, my life. Somber, I'm going to say somber again, it's really the only word for it. And consider that John's had a relatively good run of it of late from our point of view. He had a successful meeting with Stannis, where the king actually took his advice and finally left. He got some new recruits down in Molestown. And no one is claiming that's an all-time run or anything like that, but it's not half bad, is it? And yet, the general situation he's in is getting worse and worse, tougher and tougher, and it's something that merely getting rid of Alice of Thorn cannot fix. He gives us some backgrounds to those larger troubles now, as well as some more seed setting for later, where we're told of the troubles at Eastwatch and the Shadow Tower as well. It's the Eastwatch issue that will be the one we focus on more as we go forward, as the problem of Hardhome is slowly formed, that's what we're getting here, the beginnings of that plot thread. While they'll come back at the end of the book, we have the sense that we haven't even seen the full fallout from that particular storyline and we'll probably have to wait for wins to do so. And considering the POV we have coming up after this one, this might even turn out to be some pretty good chapter sequencing one day. The current problem though, as always, is one of mathematics. John does not have enough men at his own castle to send off to each end of the wall, even if he was to forego his plan of regarrisoning. And even when he does happen to find some, like at Molestown, 20 of which he split between the east and west castles, his commanders have the audacity to complain about it. They do it in their trademark styles that we learnt about back in Storm, but the message is near identical. Yes, I've been begging for rope to save me from falling off this cliff, but I didn't mean this kind of rope, this isn't good enough. Oh, and also, send more rope. <sighs> okay, we can imagine how incredibly frustrating it is for John. it annoys me enough. He cannot get blood from a stone. If there aren't more bodies, then there aren't. That's the end of it. And when he does find some, they aren't good enough because of the old prejudices that John is trying to eradicate or at least persuade people to save for after the end of the world. Alright, if you want to hate each other and be idiots, fine, but let's do it after we've survived, shall we? It also plays into the problem we spoke of earlier, of John having to send away his best, most competent men, because apparently anything else isn't good enough. There's no easy answer. It certainly doesn't seem like you'll suddenly be getting any large influx of men anytime soon. Indeed, the opposite is more likely. Death is coming to the wall, not birth. So this is a set of problems that isn't going away. Being in such a black mood, John finds himself latching onto anything that can cheer him up, even in the slightest. This time round, it's the Yard's song of steel on steel, reminding him of a simpler time when his life was the sword, when that was what he cared about and found passion in, and was his identity, as we've discussed plenty of times before. It's that old analogy that we bring up all the time about the old athlete, and this is John just remembering the joy of the game for a few seconds. It relates to another point we made very early in Dance, maybe even in the Prepper episode, that George is playing with the traditional hero story here because John barely touches the sword in this book. And yet, he gets to be more of a hero than ever because of leadership and taking on true responsibility. Which obviously isn't the normal trope for a character of John's formation. Normally, the hero goes out, he swings his sword, he beats the bad guys. Not so in this book because it's a different task, a different path for John. So it's always interesting to see how he might yearn for that kind of simpler life. Unfortunately, the relishing only lasts for a couple of seconds before he recalls the people that he used to enjoy doing this with if Rob and Sir Roderick are both dead. And we could even throw in his old sparring partners from his first days on the wall. They've all gone, they've been sent away as well. Again, give my Gren back. And also, the place that he used to do it is gone as well. Winterfell, his home. The great stronghold of House Stark was a scorched desolation. All my memories are poisoned. Oh my, it's quite the mood we're starting in today, isn't it? So screw it. 
If John has been this rubbish and everyone is being this frustrating and no solutions are forthcoming, he might as well take the opportunity to A, let those frustrations out and B, do something he likes for a change. Let your hair down, John, and pick up that sword instead. So Iron Emmett fetches his best young recruits and John demands all three fight him at once in a callback to what happened when he was just a young recruit himself and Sir Alistair set free upon him, only for John to come out on top, of course. And as I say that, I remember that might actually be show only, but... Well, it's the same general theme. John beat everyone up at the beginning because he was better than everyone else. So it's the same idea, isn't it? The young boys here are obviously astounded by this claim and we can see why there's some smarts behind this decision. It never hurts to instill some respect for their Lord Commander in your young recruits. John needs all the support he can get right now and in the coming years. Castle Black is very, very divided at the moment and the younglings will be exposed to plenty of anti-John talk, I'm sure. Being awed by him now, being shown that he does know what he's talking about, might just keep them on side and keep them loyal, and that's big. Some of the ones who have been here longer will already know about John saving the Lord Commander's life, or John commanding the war when it came to battle, but there's a difference between old stories lectured at you when you first arrive, and seeing something for yourself, so the value in this act is really sky high. And that starts when John invites the first recruit, Jace, over to him when he claims that 3 on 1 is unfair, and John responds by immediately knocking him down on his ass. Lesson 1. War is unfair, and there are no rules anymore, this isn't the South. So boom message sent. This is clearly someone to listen to and someone who doesn't mess around. And on top of that, it's generally a good lesson to impart on these younglings about how life on the wall and its upcoming struggles is going to treat them. But a clever trick isn't enough. You've also got to back it up with skill. Brash young rookies, and remember these are apparently Iron Emmett's best, need to see why they should listen to their veteran. John would have been exactly the same if he was one of these three still and he considered himself better than everyone. So he gets on with proving it, as Emric and Aaron, two twins, advance on him from behind. And what follows is a pretty neat little lesson from John that even includes him shouting out advice while he's beating them both, despite being outnumbered. He takes a lump or two, that's true, but he ends up dealing with both of them pretty easily and along the way reminds us of the true skill that John possesses. That's another reason this jaunt in the yard is a good idea. John needs to keep his skill up, both to keep the respect of his men and because he'll probably need it eventually. He might barely touch a sword in this book, but I'd guess that very few of us believe that will remain the norm in Winds and Dream. So overall, pretty good, isn't it? John's still got it. Three recruits, plus whoever is watching, see why he's worth listening to and respecting, and they might have even picked up a few tips along the way. Jolly good fun for everybody. Until someone steps up behind him. The big crow can peck the little crows, growled a voice behind him. Has he the belly enough to fight a man? You get rid of an Alistair, and there's still a rattle shirt to bother you. How annoying. The man that John believes to be his old enemy continues to goad him, claiming that he would defeat John of Ease until we get this interaction. Stannis burned the wrong man. No. The wildling grinned at him through a mouth of brown and broken teeth. He burned the man he had to burn for all the world to see. We all do what we have to, Snow. Even kings. So that's pretty funny because John is obviously unintentionally right. It was the wrong man. And we and Mance can both share a bit of a giggle over it. But then we have Mance himself not exactly being super coy about what went on and even going some way to explaining why he agreed to take part in such a venture. We'll save that for next week as well. None of it makes sense to the first time reader yet or to John himself, but it's a great little point to pick out as rereaders. And that is apparently enough for John to take the challenge. He's always hated Rattleshirt, and now there's a legitimate chance for him to let some of that hate show in an acceptable way. Especially with him semi-mocking the memory of Mance, apparently. Besides, John is all but being challenged in front of the men he's just won over. It's very hard to walk away from that, both as a point of personal pride and improving he's still top dog to these young guys. Hence, challenge accepted and another fight begins. But right from the off... It doesn't go so great. John rushes at Mance slash Rowshirt, likely hoping to surprise him in the same way that he did with the kid earlier. Besides, he wants to let that hate out and he probably also wants to deal with his own note of Mance slash Rowshirt 
looking a bit taller and a bit stronger now there's a sword in his hand. Instead of letting that idea fester, he wanted to start proving his ability to himself straight away, that he is the better fighter. So he very much got that athlete mindset once more. But like we say, it doesn't go so well. Mance meets the charge with a savage two-handed slash that John believes if he hadn't caught over his shield would have broken multiple ribs. That's how strong it is. Not a great start. He hits harder than I would have thought. And his quickness was another unpleasant surprise. This isn't going the way that John had assumed. A minute ago, he was thinking about how his own sword was pretty heavy. Mance's should be heavier, but it's being wielded like it's lighter. So it's uh-oh time. This might not have been the best idea. Iron Emmett's fledglings cheered their Lord Commander at the start, but the relentless speed of Rauschert's attacks soon beat them down to silence. He cannot keep this up for long, John told himself, as he stopped another blow. While it's nice to see that John did have the Leongling's support at the beginning, it's equally devastating to see how quick they have to quiet him down. Mance slash Rauscher is stronger and faster than John would have believed, and somewhere inside, John is talented enough to know he's in trouble. But he keeps reassuring himself that he's not. He will tire in a minute, because I would tire in a minute, and I have to believe that we're at least similar, that's what John's telling himself. He might have moved on to bigger and better things as Lord Commander, but his ability with a sword is still a huge part of his psyche and confidence and identity, and being beaten, especially by someone he hates, is a huge blow. Again, any athletes out there, you know what I'm talking about. The fight continues, and John fares no better. He misses Mance, but Mance does not miss him, even though their different equipment dictates that it should be the other way around. And Mance is even laughing while he does it. In what seems like a second, a fair fight, if it ever was such, turns into a near routing. John is backing up, his shield is already gone, he's bruised, he's sweating, and he finally admits that Rauscher is just too strong, too fast. So in the end, he kind of, well, I don't think it counts as cheating. He just explained to his recruits there is no such thing for a start, but it definitely is him going for broke, we'll say, when he launches himself straight into his opponent and takes him to ground, swords dropped. This is now an old-fashioned wrestle in the mud because, well, the sword thing wasn't working. Unfortunately, this doesn't work either. Mance gets on top, he outwrestles John, he smashes his head on the ground and irrefutably wins the duel. Things are so bad that Horse and Iron Emmett have to drag Mance off their Lord Commander. So much for all that good faith that John just built of the young recruits with a showing of skill because now he's just been destroyed. So it's a pretty thrilling duel, isn't it? Very good fight. And I've got to admit, I can never remember where this is in the story. If I'd asked beforehand, I probably would have said later on, but well, now I know, don't I? So what can we take from this? Firstly, and pretty importantly, Mance is a hell of a fighter. We've never really got to witness that before. We don't get to witness it after this, but it's definitely true. There's a reason he's been able to survive the others and unite the wildlings, and that goes beyond his political astuteness that he already displayed to us in the past. Wildlings do indeed follow strength. We know that John is no slouch, and Mance just handled him easily, so that says something, doesn't it? And it makes you wonder if we're going to see that skill again. Maybe. Was he likely also fueled by letting out the frustrations of losing his war and many of his people, and technically his life as he lives on in this glamour with his former reputation destroyed and burnt? Undoubtedly. And there's likely some resentment with John in there as well, fairly or unfairly. And what about the other side? What does it say about John? Maybe it says he underestimates his opponents at times. That theme will surely be coming back to bite him later on, won't it? But also, I think it's a bit of a reminder that you have to respect the game. He's a busy guy, I get it, but he has to practice and keep up with his skills or he will be beaten. So hopefully he retains that message a bit. For now, he does an incredible job of being noble in defeat and complimenting his hated enemy on his performance, and he even manages to retain some wisdom from the long-ago voice of Sir Roderick. There is always someone quicker and stronger, Sir Roderick had once told John and Rob. He's the man you want to face in the yard, before you need to face his like upon a battlefield. So that's a pretty damn good attitude to have after having your ass handed to you like that, and I commend John on it, and for not wanting to take petty revenge on Mance while the opportunity is there. Good job, John, I say. But after that brief interlude of the world existing of a sword and the man in front of you, the wider world comes creeping back in with all its problems. 
This time, its conduit is poor Clyder, standing there with a letter in hand. Instinctively, John thinks it's Stannis, and news of his plan for Deepwood Mott, as we saw come to fruition in last week's episode. And John notes how he finds himself hoping that Stannis has been victorious. But his assumption was incorrect. This is no letter from Stannis. But from the other side of the war, this, like the one we saw Asher receive last time, is a letter in flaky ink in the form of a huge, spiky hand. When he saw the signature, he forgot the battering Rattleshirt had given him. And that was a hell of a beating, so we know this is damn important. The beginning of the letter is bad enough. Many of the assembled lords of the North join themselves to House Bolton. That's bad news for Stannis and for the personal grudges that Jon still bears within his heart, even if he says he doesn't. Then comes the news that Moat Cainan has fallen. So they've scored a victory against the Ironborn, which will win them the hearts of the commoners. And Roose Bolton has returned to the North with all his strength. If the letter had ended there, it would be a pretty bad letter. But it doesn't. It gets worse. Far, far worse than Jon could have ever dreamed. Roose Bolton summons all leal lords to Barrington to affirm their loyalty to the Iron Throne and celebrate his son's wedding to... His heart seemed to stop for a moment. No, that is not possible. She died in King's Landing, with father. He's to marry Arya Stark, my little sister. Is there a line that John could read that would be more devastating to him at this point? Pretty hard to imagine one. This is obviously a huge, gigantic glut of sudden emotion, the kind that really sticks in your throat until it feels like you can't breathe. How do we even really unpack something like this? Well, the truth is we won't. Mere words aren't going to do the trick, but I think we all resonate with what John is feeling here and just how massive, how important this is to him. Firstly, there's the sheer surprise of Aya, apparently, being alive. He spent years now figuring that she died a long, long time ago, and he kind of accepted slash made peace with that as much as you ever can. So this is a moment of extreme happiness, in a way, mixed with bitter thoughts about how she's been treated in the years since, that she's been all alone and without family for the entire time. She's been alive only to feel misery. And then there's a the true kicker of not just having to get married as a child, which is obviously distressing enough, but to Ramsay Bolton, whose legends of cruelty have spread across the land, and now dearest Aya, the person that Jon Snow cares about the most in the world, will apparently be his wife. So, uh, what do we say? Wow emotional moment and then some i think this hurts way 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 more than anything mance's sword could dream up no doubt and on top of that is the, the readers know that no this isn't Aya coming up to marry ramsay it's jane Poole who obviously deserves all of our dearest commiserations but adds another layer of tragedy to it all because we know john is feeling these terrible feelings unnecessarily and will go on believing so until it really really costs him later we've had plenty of seeds set for john's dance ending but now we're really getting a sturdy rope thrown at us one they will lead right to the very end. Even if you were to get past this horrible, stinging moment, which John obviously isn't right now, it's also pretty bad news politically. This allows the Boltons with an in to the rest of the North and be allowed to be seen as legitimate rulers. It's bad news for Stannis and his hopes. It's bad news for John and the history of House Stark. How does John deal with this in the moment? Well, immediately he tries to come to himself that I will fight because that's the eye he knows and Ramsay will never lay a finger on her. I doubt he really believes that deep down, but for right now he just needs to comfort this. We'll deal with the rest later. And honestly, the irony in that is he's actually got no idea how much of a fighter Aya has actually become. His second technique is the public, and it's basically to just shut it down. He says this, I have no sister, only brothers, only you. Lady Catelyn would have rejoiced to hear those words, he knew. That did not make them easier to say. These words are half to reinforce his position with his men. There's plenty enough rumours flying around that he's too selfish and too self-serving of the power that's been afforded to him. He's always preaching that they're here for one goal and one goal only, so he has to lead with that. But the other half is to try and deaden the pain just a little bit. He can't be hurt because it doesn't affect him. He's Lord Commander now, a brother to men of the Night's Watch and no one else. Can't hurt me if I don't let it in. Again, he doesn't believe that in the slightest, but he needs it just right now while he's in front of everyone, 
with this news that's completely blindsided him. Besides, he gives away his true feelings a nanosecond later. His fingers closed around the parchment. Would that they could crush Ramsay Bolton's throat as easily. He can try and ignore, put it to the back of the mind, but the hatred for Ramsay is there, and the love for Aya is even stronger. For now, John declines to send a reply, because what can he legitimately do? What's the point? And he just walks away. Later, John is tending to the bruises of both body and soul, listening to Melisandre's nightfire sermon out of his window, and we discover that the issue of Aya has gone nowhere. He wants to help her, of course, blatantly. He wants to go and save her, rescue her, and be the brother that he is, but he can't. He made a commitment and swore his life to the job. He makes the excellent point that if anyone else had this problem, well, they wouldn't be allowed to go and do anything, so why should John? What makes him so special? Why would he be allowed? And that's the case whatever rank he is, but he's Lord Commander. And Lord Commander in the very desperatistest of times. Yeah, that's, that's a word, I'm sure. He can't just go off settling personal scores when there's a world to protect first. But still, the temptation is there. Much stronger than that of even Winterfell, I'd say. Stay, do your duty, ultimately. Protect people. Or... Hmm, fly away and give in to your heart's desires. We know the eventual answer, as sure here as we do in Marine, but that doesn't make this moment any easier for John. There's frustration at his own rules, likely frustration at turning down Stannis' offer because he would have actually been able to do something if he had taken it. There's happiness about I being alive, sadness about Aya's situation, guilt about his vows, guilt about his sister, what would Eddard Stark say, was it duty or family, the man loved both. The thoughts swirl round and round, crueler and crueler, until John can no longer stand it and steps out into the cold night instead. Ghost comes with him, into the cold, which is nice. You need your ghost at a moment like this. John just has time for some more moodiness on this home that he's signed up to for the rest of his life, with also a split second of warging into ghost senses, perhaps as a hint to the further connection between a trio of characters given who we're about to talk to, before another incredibly emotional moment comes to just hit him in the face. When he turned, he saw Egret. She stood beneath the scorched stones of the Lord Commander's tower, cloaked in darkness and in memory. The light of the moon was in her hair, her red hair kissed by fire. When he saw that, John's heart leapt into his mouth. Egret, he said. Lord Snow. The voice was Melisandre's. Oh, man, it's not John's day, is it? He's beaten to a pulp, he gets the news of Aya, and then he's made to relive the other guiltiest moment of his life and another huge loss and scar upon his heart. All that with actually believing it was real, just for a moment, before the acute embarrassment and melancholy of realising you were wrong. Melisandre comes out of the night, and perhaps knowing we've been reading about Benero and his big temple of late, she comes out swinging in terms of her own mystique and powers. For starters, she wears mere robes and no gloves, apparently completely impervious to the extreme cold. You know we have to be interested in stuff like this and just how powerful she really is. Double down on that, she already knows about Aya somehow and apparently has something to offer. Your sister is not lost to you. I have no sister. The words were knives. But Melisandre offers an out. She's had a vision of a girl fleeing to John upon a dying horse and proclaims it to be Aya. So there's a chance that she will not marry Ramsay. There's a chance John will reunite with his beloved sister. But there's danger also. If she's running, she might be chased. And we know what Ramsay's chasing is like. She might be captured on the way. Winter has come in the north to take her on the road. There's any sort of danger that could happen. And of course, even the first time we read it, we'll know that Aya is nowhere near here. And they've obviously got no reason to suspect Alice Carstark. So most would assume that this is actually Jane Poole maybe getting away. And that starts us wondering what Fionn might get up to in his near future. But rereaders know that Melisandre is wrong in this instance, and just guessing for what would fit best, because that's what she does. So this might be a sign of hope for John in some ways, even if he's not really focusing on it right now, but it will also only prove to be a bitter disappointment that he might have preferred not to have at all, really. For it isn't the vision that takes John's breath away. It's this. She gazed at Ghost. May I touch your... wolf? Hmm. Anyone else getting uh, hot under the collar when they read that? Or is that just me? 
Whatever. Beyond that, we have this also. Ghost. Melisandre made the word a song. Not only does Ghost obey and go over to her, he makes friends near immediately, something that really knocks John off his perch, but not so much as when he tries to call his ghosty back and the direwolf looks at him as if he were a stranger. Wow, how much heartbreak can we actually get in one chapter? I don't know about you, but I find this whole interaction deeply unsettling. We want to believe that the connection between Stark Child and Direwolf is unique, unknowable and unbreakable. Something completely personal between them and them alone, separate from the rest of the world and incorruptible. Yet, this seems to suggest that it is not. There might be a way to interrupt it, even break it perhaps. There might exist a power that can control a direwolf and use their ability to be warred or something like it. Maybe the door's just kind of been opened in their minds like that. And maybe that power comes via song. Check the name of the series, guys. This could be a really, really important moment. One that I don't think we focus on enough, given the proposal Melisandre gives in just a second. We might, right here, be given the hint of how control of direwolves, and maybe dragons as well, can be earned or stolen. Melisandre uses song here. The dragons apparently require horns. Music. Sound. This is what we're getting at. The children of the forest have already told Bran about their true songs of the earth that they sung for 10,000 years. We might be getting down to the very bedrock of the series right here. After all, George loves the world J.R. Tolkien. That's obviously a very large influence in him. And if you've ever read up on the lore of that world, you know that that universe was literally created with music, at least as far as I'm aware. So, who knows? This series refers to a song for a reason. And this, this moment here just gives me the creeps. Is a song the basis of ice and fire whites? Is that how they exist? Will we see a direwolf be stolen in a very different way than pure walking? Although that would be bad enough. I cannot say. But Melisandre's powers at the wall are clearly a higher level than we previously assumed. And we get set to wondering what she's going to use that power for and what others might be able to do when they come themselves. Perhaps this is all just a hint at the connection between Mel and Ghost that may well need to be exploited at the beginning of Winds to bring Jon back. It certainly seems to be a hint that way, especially when Jon thinks, I am not a wolf. He just you wait for winds, buddy boy. Then we'll see who's a wolf and who isn't. He thinks that because Minasandra is already moving past her vision and her song to promote another subject, the use of power, as she gets her quaff on now by imploring John to embrace his inner power. Yes, apparently we don't have enough similarities between John and Danny just yet. We want another one. Although the difference here is that Minasandra is clearly imploring John to give in to her carnal desires and allow her to make another shadow baby slash assassin. In our joining, there is power. Power to make life, power to make light, power to cast shadows. Shadows, John said, and the world seemed darker when he said it. We should all have chills right about now, as memories of Clash and the bowels of Storm's End come flooding back to us. John has no idea about any of that, of course, but he can sense the creepiness in it. He can sense the truth in her words. She does have a power. There is something she can do with shadows. How very tempting it might be to give in, especially if it means he can save Aya. Yeah. John is John, and he resists and remains pure for now anyway, instead inciting the famous quote of Dalla and how hiltless the sword of sorcery can be. And as you might recall, I love that quote and its many meanings. I love it to pieces. We can all agree, it's probably a pretty good choice from John here. The union cost Stannis something before, and we don't even know the full extent of that really, so who knows what would happen to John. Besides, how do we know that Melisandre would use this shadow baby to help him? Would she send it to kill Roose, or maybe Ramsay? That's handy for both John and Stannis, but it's no guarantee of safety for Aya, is it? And how would she get the assassin there anyway? She was very, very close last time, or was that just a matter of having to get past Storm's End's defences? Or is distance no trouble now, given the extra power of the wall? Could she send the shadow anywhere? Could she even make one that's permanent, stronger in some way? I shudder to think. And would she even send it towards the Boltons anyway? Or would she kill Bowen Marsh? Would she go and kill the Weeper? How about some enemy we don't even know about? The mind boggles at the possibility, but John shows off his strength of character, bruises and all, by resisting the temptation. 
Melisandre accepts the wisdom in Dalla's words, but gives away what was basically her philosophy on life when she says, A sword without a hilt is still a sword though, and a sword is a fine thing to have when foes are all about. Basically, use what you've got and go for it. That's her mantra. And we can see that mentality in her seeing visions and hoping she's basically got them right, spare to have them out there and maybe help them ignore them. Yeah, sure. And in Stannis also, better to give the world someone who is probably a Zora High, even if we're not really sure, rather than not give them one at all. That's her line of thinking, we follow it pretty straight. So Melisandre decides a showing of power is required, and she enlists another vision to do so, the one that we talked about earlier, and takes us back to the beginning of the chapter, as George so often likes to do. As we discussed earlier, it is the death of the three men that Jon sent out to the forest, or three of the men he sent into the forest. They will be returned as heads, without eyes, and stuck on poles. And when Jon sees that for true, maybe he will believe in her power and allow her to save Arya, which in a roundabout way would just be another avenue of persuading Jon to give her his power. Of course, rereaders know precisely how effective this promise is going to be. Like we said at the beginning, she's on the money, unfortunately, and John is going to have to deal with that. And there we have it, that is the end of the chapter. An ominous ending for an ominous chapter from start to finish. And I've got to say, I loved it. I love all these John chapters at the moment. I am really, really enjoying his arc, especially when placed uh, next to Tyrion's not-so-fun one at the moment. This chapter was half the length of Tyrion's, and yet I feel we got double the content. This one's got it all. We wave goodbye to Alistair, we've got the weight of the ranger's mission, not one, but two really cool jewels. We haven't had those in a while, have we? The relationship of John and Hidden Mance, the incredible emotional moment of Aya and the guilt and difficulty surrounding that. Then this confusion over ghosts, the idea of shadow babies, the vision of Alice Karstark, the vision of the dead rangers, and the guilt of John being told that he's effectively killed three men, along with lots and lots of Melisandre questions in general, all wrapped up in the difficulties that John faces every day. It's a hell of a chapter. Again, we've got logistics, personal relationships, an uber, creepy, mystical atmosphere of visions and ghosts and power, the power of Minasandra, which is very well timed considering we'll finally get a look inside her mind next week. It's pretty great timing from George to remind us of how creepy and dark and powerful she can be just before we turn the page and see her name at the top for the very first time. It seems like we got so much set up for what is coming at the end and beyond into wins as well, and again, I'm just obsessed with that ghost song and what it means overall. It is a hell of a chapter. It's our clearest shot yet at post-Stannis Castle Black, at John really being in charge. We've got that full weight of being pulled in every direction, not being able to satisfy anyone. We love him kind of giving in to that core part of himself and wanting to duel and fight with swords and just have that for a little bit, with the wider world still coming crashing down and the war still affecting him and everything. This chapter just got everything. I love it. We get so much and yeah, nice one, George, I say. But if we want to talk about Good Job George, there's probably no better place than our final chapter. Because this is one of the best chapters in the books. One of the best chapters in the series. And if you don't agree, that aisle might not be in a place for you because I love this chapter. Almost everyone loves this chapter. Why? Because it's brilliant across the board. It's one of the most thrilling, exciting chapters that we could ever want. And well, let's just get into it, shall we? Let's head into our final chapter of the day. Davos 4. We're here. Here we go. If last week we had the opening of new POVs and eras and dance, then that unfortunately means that some do have to close to make room. Well, they don't have to, really, but George is a cruel master, we know. In a book obsessed of the dark and times of doom, Davos is our sweet treat. He's had hard times for his three chapters, it's true, but it's just nice to be in the mind of someone so good. He's a good man, such a rarity in this story, in this world. So we want to spend all the time with him that we can. We want to see him finally win and go and save people, maybe even get to go home and generally just keep being cool. But we don't. Instead, we have our first final chapter 
of the book. This time around, we're not really kicking off a common occurrence just yet. Technically, the same will happen for Melisandre next week, but it doesn't really count, does it? And the really the closest will be Bran in a fortnight's time when he closes his short arc as well. Other than that one closing, we can wait a while yet for the other POV to start stopping. This isn't an entirely new feeling, having already been through Feast and experienced the final chapters of major characters like a Sam or a Brian, a Sansa for example, how can you get more major than that? But when we finish that book, there's always the hope of getting some kind of information or hint later on because we had a whole other book of material to go through. Now that is not the case, unfortunately. It's a reminder that we're coming to the end of this reread journey. We're not far away at all. It's sobering in its way, emotional almost. And that's especially true for Davos, who doesn't have any Wind's preview chapters dedicated to him, or anyone really in the same area of the world to give hints. Even Bran gets more of a mention after his close. For Davos, he is a walk off stage, and then nothing. He just goes off into the ether, into the unknown. There's theories and ideas, of course, which we will explore at the end. I mean, this is A Song of Ice and Fire, can you expect anything less? But nothing confirmed, not for the longest time. And it really is a bit sad, because we love Davos, and it just seems to come too soon. We're not even halfway through the book, George. Come on, you can stretch out a little bit, can't you? Give us some more Davos. If I'm honest, I could dwell on how much we're going to miss this guy for another half an hour or more, but I suppose we should actually talk about what's going on here. Because like I say, this is a chapter quite unlike any other. It is the perfect mix of... George dangling a hook and then ripping the carpet out from our feet. We think there's doom coming. Then it turns out to be the exact opposite. Then there's question marks and thrill rides. It's just got it all. And if you're talking about something to raise the spirit and get you really, really revved up for the last act of the series, I'm just going to point you to Davos 4 again and again. And before we go in, let's remember what the expectations are for a first-time reader coming across this chapter. Let me set the base for you here. They expect to be reading pretty much the very worst chapter imaginable, the death of Davos Seaworth. After hearing the vicious rumours of his demise and feast, we were surely low, and then high again when we discovered he would be a dance POV, and then low again when considering the possibility that George might show us his final days in his cruelty, and then high again as we warred against that notion and convinced ourselves not even George would be so cruel, and then finally low one last time as we heard why we mandated this decree and Davos was ordered down into the dungeons in his last chapter. With that in mind, has there ever been a more dreaded chapter for first-timers? Let's say you're a very sneaky first-timer who peeks at the chapter wiki list and sees that this is Davos' last chapter in the book. Well, what are you supposed to think? So I imagine a horde of people very gently lifting each page and gingerly peering around it to see if the end is coming because very few deaths could hurt us more, especially if you eliminate the Starks from that. With that in mind, the ultimate payoff to this chapter becomes worth even more, but we've got to work our way up to that yet. So let us enter a chapter chock full of personal emotion from two men at very different ends of the war, full of what truly matters to a man when his character is tested. It's full of loyalty, political intrigue, subterfuge, minute details, incredible intricacies of plotting amongst enemies, revenge, one of the best resurfacings of an old storyline in the form of a forgotten squire, and perhaps most of all justified revenge and the potential good that can come out of it. Perhaps most important of all is two key themes we'll pay attention to more than any others. The war for the North is even more complicated than before, and it's truly kicking off now. Northmen versus Northmen for the soul of their home. And linked to that is the discovery of one of the biggest secrets in the series in terms of in-world characters. At least one male Stark lives, and we're going to get him. And all that comes before one hell of a cliffhanger, doesn't it? Okay, I could go on for the intro for, again, an hour, but let's look at the chapter, shall we? Let's begin. Oh look, there's Davos, and he appears to be in a cell. Well, if this is his swan song, it should be made up of the notes that we've already seen him play throughout the series, should it not? I really could, I could go back and look at how many Davos chapters actually include him being in prison somewhere, because I bet it's like nearly half. 
Besides Sansa, no one has spent more time behind bars, either physical or mental. It's just a core part of his makeup now and always serves to make us even more sympathetic because he's normally in there for doing something good. It's an irony as well that for a man who spent his life as a criminal, he never spent so much time in a jail cell as when he became a legit politician. And yes, I suppose you can say Theon spent more time in prison, but he doesn't really count because he kind of earned it. From the off, George wants us on our toes. There's going to be no rest or comfort for us here in this chapter. He knows the unique power that he holds over us for this single chapter. He knows that nothing else in the series can quite compare to it because of these very unique circumstances. So he's going to have his fun. Hence our opening line. Even in the gloom of the wolf's den, Davos Seaworth could sense that something was awry this morning. So we've got atmosphere from the word gloom. We've got confirmation that Davos is down in the dungeons, nothing's happened in between 3 and 4 to save him unfortunately, and we've got the word awry to tell us that something is wrong and that gets us wondering what it is. Given all those circumstances we've already talked about, our first worry is obviously that he's going to be summoned for execution, and we're so concerned for Davos that the possibilities fling through our mind with devious speed. Maybe there is some kind of prisoner uprising happening. Could it be a fellow prisoner intending to harm Davos? Do we even dare to hope there's some unforeseen attempt to free him? And if so, will that also end in death because most springing attempts do in this series? These type of questions are going to dog every paragraph, but right away from the beginning, as he so often does, George has set his tension trap for us. And he keeps going with it as well. The sound of voices outside the door, too muffled to be clear. It's dawn, but there's no breakfast. Things are not as they usually are, and Davos himself is now getting frightened. And that breaks our hearts a little bit to see. I don't want to see Davos frightened, especially when he confirms our own worst fears by figuring this is it, this is his end. This may be the day I die. Garth may be sitting with Whetstone even now to put an edge on Lady Lou. Just imagine the incredible, stressful fear of knowing that at any moment you might be seized and executed. Imagine how quickly that could drive you insane, jumping at every noise, never knowing. There's no wonder that Davos has seemingly latched onto routine and regularity. Is likely the only way he can calm himself. So when that's now interrupted, the worry understandably comes flooding back. It's an awful ordeal to live through, again, unimaginable. Davos confirms as much as he tells us that he thinks of why Armandalee's promise to kill him last thing at night and first thing in the morning. On top of that, his goal will only refer to him as dead man. So that's an incredible mental toll to bear, isn't it? One that could easily crack anyone, no matter how brave they are. So we should really give Davos credit for keeping himself together here. This Garth, Garth the Gola, goes even further with his essential form of mental torture as Davos relays how he brought down his two weapons to intimidate Davos with. One, a hot poker to torture him, the other, the biggest axe that Davos Seawas has ever seen, the one that will eventually kill him. It's hard for Davos, it's hard for us. Every paragraph so far seems to confirm that Davos is going to die while we're crying out for any evidence to the contrary. And then there's the idea that he might even be tortured beforehand for no reason other than cruel blindness. We're all but begging George now not to put us through such a scene. I would not be able to read that. I don't know about you. It would be way, way, way too much. Luckily, Davos is slightly more collected than we are. I will not plead for mercy, Davos resolved. He would go to his death at night, asking only that they take his head before his hands. Even Garth would not be so cruel as to deny him that, he hoped. He's damn brave, and he's damn impressive to us. Though there is a little gut punch that Davos having to hopefully or at least be spared the pain of having his hands cut off first. He's scared, that's obvious. Yet he's being brave as well. Hmm, brave when you're scared. I think there's a book that's got a good quote about that. I'll have to try and remember what that is. So Davos is still listening through the door, but unfortunately getting nowhere. So instead, he gets up and introduces us to his cell. And from all the cells we've seen him in, it's pretty nice. Indeed, it's bigger than many rooms he's inhabited while being free. Due to the Wolfsden being a converted prison, there's a sense that this was once a lordling's bedchamber. It's got a half, it's got a privy. Could be a hell of a lot worse. And to go with it, he gets fresh fish, and warm bread, actual vegetables, and curiously eats better than his own gaolers, which obviously doesn't win him a friend in Garth. 
He's kept warm and clean, and he's even been given paper and ink and a book. It sounds like he's got himself a proper cosy little corner here. So there's at least some gentle comfort for us here that Davos is well looked after. For first time readers, we're almost naive. Maybe this is just what the cells in the wolf's den looked like. Or maybe why Mandy is at least being honourable to his prisoner before giving the final order. Although the food and supplies do seem above the call. It doesn't stick out to us too much right now, but as re-readers, we can look back and see the hints of why Mandy's true intentions, can't we? But as Davos reminds us, a cell is a cell, no matter how nice it looks. Sansa could probably speak to that as well, I feel. He is still completely shut off from the world, even the mere sense of the outside. There is no sight or sounds. There are still chains to remind him of what's coming, and that knowledge doesn't go anywhere just because you get a nice dinner. The worst part is not the dying. It's not knowing when or how. As we mentioned a moment ago, the real struggle of this is the mental, the uncertainty, knowing that every single minute could be the one that your door opens and you die. Luckily, most of us, I'm guessing, have never had to experience such horror, so it's very, very difficult to get across how mentally taxing that is, but we can be assured it's taxing. And perhaps the worst part of it is that Davos is simply lonely. Yeah, damn, heartbreak again. Lonely in his cell and lonely in the whole structure. Apparently Davos is the only prisoner there, and confirms for us that there are much worse dungeons that he could occupy below, so we can be thankful he's not there at least. Next we get a little run-through of the only people remaining in Davos's world, Sir Bartimus, the one-legged knight who apparently saved Wyomandy's life on the Trident, and we meet pretty few Trident survivors, so that's always interesting. There's a cook, six guardsmen, two washerwomen and two turnkeys, and it's really only the latter two that he ever sees. Garth, he's the elder one who likes to show off his weapons, while there is also a younger Terry, or Ferry perhaps, who's only a lad and not so vile. One of the most interesting things about Davos, and one that we don't get to explore as often as I'd like, is the skills that he forged hard over his years as a smuggler and a captain. In this case, it's his social skills and knowing how to read people. For instance, Garth is a bad egg. I should not try interacting with him, because it will only earn me a date with the red hot poker. But the other two... Terry slash Ferry and Sir Bartimus are of a better sort. So Davos is just polite with his P's and Q's. He engages them in their own conversation, which they very much rarely get to indulge in, and is generally just the nice guy we know him to be. It's not rocket science, he's just being cool, and it works. In return, he gets those little favours we spoke about earlier, and another comfort level is added as he gets to know the two men who are at opposite stages of life. No, he doesn't get to find out anything about the war or Stannis, which is obviously what he'd prefer, but still, it's pretty nice. He's got Terry opening up to him about all his dreams of glory and war as all the 14 year olds like to dream of, about the problems of his mother, and he's even interested in Davos' own tales as a smuggler. So that is a genuinely heartwarming note that we can take, again, comfort in. Davos has made a friend, as he often does for the young, and can even relate some of his old stories. That's got to be a pretty huge boon for him down here, and you love to see it. So Bartimus might not be so interested in smuggling stories, but he still makes for a good chat especially if you want to be distracted from the stresses of the current day because he's got no interest in those. Instead, he's more like a living history book centred on the background of the wolf's den, which Davos repeats for us here. And if we've read the world book or some other sources, this won't be new to us, but it's still pretty interesting. This structure was the original defence against sea raiders in the area and was built by a Stark, a John Stark, ironically enough, and to give us some good chapter sequencing. And he was a king, no less. A King John Stark. Yeah, we see you, George. We know what you're up to. You sneaky little so-and-so. From King John, the Wolfstone was inherited by many, many other Starks. This is very much a Stark place, which is important for some of the themes we'll hit later on in the chapter. Then it began to be occupied by offshoots of the family, such as the Grey Starks, who held it for five centuries until they signed with Team Bolton and paid the price. Hmm. That's also important for what we'll see later on. There are lessons in history, apparently. Who knew? We get more, further history, bundles of it, as different northern families were brought in with the very, very important task of defending the White Knife, which we know to be the true road into the north. 
It was a task not always fulfilled as well, as the Woolstone was lost to reavers, to veilmen, even to slavers from the stepstones. It's that tale that Sir Bartimus focuses on as the slavers were set upon by a true northern winter, and out of that winter came another Stark king, a Brandon, just to keep up with the modern naming game. He defeated the slavers and gave them to the slaves that they had kept, so the slavers ended up with their entrails strung over the branches of a heart tree as a form of blood sacrifice. So we get to see what occurs when winter really comes. We get some very nice sequencing, considering what we'll see when we return to Bran's POV for a final time, not too far in the future. And there's a strong possibility that Sir Davos comes into contact with some slavers in the future. So Sir Bartimus is really packing it in here. Though his real message is that the Seven have no place in winter, and the old gods still exist here, no matter who the Mandalays worship. After the history lesson comes letter writing time, and I hope you have your tissues ready because you might need them. Mainly for this line. I was a better smuggler than a knight, he had written to his wife. A better knight than a king's hand. A better king's hand than a husband. Yes, Davos has not only remembered that he has a wife, but also that he's apparently got quite the poetic soul. Beautiful though the line is, it still cuts deep that he's summing up his life as a string of failures where he got worse and worse the higher up he went. It's an unfair conclusion, even if there might be some truth in his husbandry skills, depending on how you look at it. The letter is mainly an apology, a statement of love, and advice on what to do, depending on the two possible outcomes of the war, which highlights some after-effects that we don't normally get to think of. If Stannis loses, and remember, there will be rumours that he dies later on in this book, then Maya is to go to Bravos and try to carve out a life there. The idea breaks Davos' heart, but he hopes his young sons will still be taught to think of him kindly, despite him not bringing them a better life. But if Stannis wins, their lands will remain, and Devon will remain at court with a chance to rise high and look after the family in his own way, and his brothers will be given the same chance once they are old enough. The only constant is that Davos has resigned himself to the fact that he won't be around for either eventuality. In many ways, all of his trials have been for nothing. He never won the opportunity to go home and see his family, and turn down the chance when it did come. It's a very sad time. That feeling remains over his stiff words to his younger boys that he hasn't had the chance to get to know yet, and now never will do. He remembers the sons he lost upon the Blackwater, and then he settles on Devon, the de facto middle kid, the surviving son that he knows best, the one that I still worry is in for a very rough time of it up there with Melisandre, but we'll save that for another time. Tell his grace I did my best, he ended. I am sorry that I failed him. I lost my luck when I lost my finger bones, the day the river burned below King's Landing. Ugh, yeah, Davos is really getting into our feelings now. This idea that he has to apologise to Stannis for, after all he's done for him, this mindset of failure and everything going wrong ever since he lost his finger bones. And we're not done with the emotion, here's another quote. A man should have more to say when staring at the end of his life, he thought. But the words came hard. I did not do so ill, he tried to tell himself. I rose up from Fleabon to be a king's hand, and I learned to read and write. Again, it's hard hitting. The feeling of a man trying to summarise a life within just a letter. The true confrontation of the fact that his end has come, and what he leaves behind. The heartbreaking need to try and comfort himself and tell himself he did okay, while we want to pick up the book and scream, you did more than okay Davos, you did amazing, you are one of the very best, but that is denied to us. Instead we get the very sombre, sober moment and feeling of, this is actually it. Everything we've witnessed in Davos's eyes over three books has led here. A very final weight settles down upon us. Which is obviously by design from our grand architect, because it is here that George decides he's finally done playing with his food, and flips one of the largest switches ever. We have one final heart-stop moment when the door opens. Is this his gowlers come to march into the block, or maybe even do worse? No. Instead, it is a man Davos does not recognise, a man with a glove approach upon his cloak, and a man who not only addresses Davos as Lord Seaworth, but also says please when asking if he'll come with him. Davos has the same queries as us. Execution is scarce so polite, so he asks who this stranger is. 
Robert Glover, if it please my lord. And that alone is enough to be sending us into a frenzy of thrilled excitement, if I'm honest with you. We've got surprise and shock, we've got confusion. We're also guessing that this guy is not taking a second career as a headsman. Davos might just survive the day, do we dare think it? And also, why the hell was Robert Glover here, of all people? We heard the rumours that he was in the city trying to raise men, but that he'd failed, so why is he now dealing with Davos? And then Robert begins to spill all that's happened of late in the north, with Deepwood Mott and Moat Caden and the Freys and the Bolton plan to take Winterfell. And now our hearts are really, really pumping, because you know the other thing you don't normally bother with when you're about to kill a man? Giving him all the latest news. Davos is being told this for a reason. Davos is going to be involved in some way. Guys, there's a real chance George has completely hoodwinked us and we might not see Davos die at all, or at least not today. Maybe we still will eventually, but after this incredibly, truly emotional start to the chapter, we'll take any sliver of hope we can. Things are exciting enough when Robert promises that this will all be explained in a moment, but that is quickly trumped by this line. Though if you die, you will not be at a glover's hands, nor Lord Wyman's. Quickly now, with me. Fucking yes, now we are on. Now we have our quickest heartbeats of the whole book so far, in my opinion. The tension and excitement we've got now would be similar to what we find at a book's ending normally, but they are coming in such floods now that you probably have to read the next few paragraphs twice because your eyes are moving too quick for your brain, if you're anything like me anyway. Robert leaves him out through the old castle, past an ancient heart tree grown so dominant it has overrun all the other trees. It carries a face that's fat and angry, and perhaps an ode to who we are about to meet. Or maybe it's a sign that that sacrificed blood that we heard about a minute ago has fed it and made it large and powerful, maybe. From there, it's down into the depths beneath water-soaked cellars and staircases, a hidden tunnel in a wall and secret passageways. Oh, yeah, this is the type of thing to really get us going. This is what we need. We learn we're actually travelling beneath the new castle itself, along a secret way to keep Davos hidden. And we get even more Legend of Zelda vibes, you know, I like them, when we step through yet another wall passage to suddenly arrive in a nice, comfortable room. This one is warm, there's candles and furnishings, and a gigantic map of the north on the wall. We've walked into the secret war room bunker of the castle, and within it sits Wyman Mandley. Yes, indeed, our jaws are littered all over the floor. Davos has better control of himself than we do. When he's offered food and drink, he's originally quite cold to Lord Wyman. Which is fair, the man has just locked him up and promised to kill him. And Davos likely hasn't dared to yet think he might be saved, and he doesn't rush ahead like we do. He told us he would go to his end as a brave knight, and that doesn't mean having to be polite to his killers. Luckily, Wyman is not haughty over what he's done. Instead, he admits he has been shameful. But before we dive too deeply into that, we get our first piece of critical news. Willis Manderley has been returned. He is home. He is safe. The noises that Davos can hear far above them are the welcoming feast and the celebration up there in the Merman's Court, where Manderley dances with Frey and keeps the spirit of friendship up. We as rereaders know that this point about Willis is absolutely critical and the true catalyst for what is about to come. None of it happens without him, but to Davos this still sounds like a kind of elaborate boast. So Wyman continues, explaining that he has snuck away from the feast pretending he's actually been in the privy. So even Davos's curiosity has peaked right now, because what possible reason would Wyman have for sneaking away from the return of his son just to speak to Davos? And it turns out that the answer is this, to tell Davos that he is dead. A man has been executed in his place, his head and hands removed and placed upon the seal gate with his face turned out to sea to prevent any analysis of his features. Features that have been best manipulated to look like Davos, a beard trimmed, fingers trimmed even further, an apple shoved in his mouth before being dipped in tar, all while the real Davos sits down here below the Merman's Court. My lord, I bear you no ill will. The rancor I showed you in the Merman's Court was a mummer's fast, put on to please our friends of Frey. There it is. 
There it actually is, finally, after what seems like an age since that fateful Cersei chapter in Feast. Confirmation that Davos Seaworth was not executed, he never was. And the wave of relief that we feel as first-time readers is indescribable. How can I possibly put that into words? Well, I'm not even going to try. We've been carrying around this sense of dread for so, so long now, the feeling that one of our favourites might be killed at all, never mind in such an unjust way. That's obviously been multiplied here in Dance as it came to a head in Davos 3, and we're convinced that it was the truth no matter how much we didn't want it to be. We've discussed the horribleness of that multiple times, how much it truly hit our heart, almost as much as any casualty in the series. And we finally find out it's not true. Everything we hoped for, no matter how minuscule the odds, has actually happened, and I really can't describe it as anything short of euphoria. Even before we get the details and the how and the why, we have this simple fact to focus on, and it's one of the happiest moments in the whole series for us. How can it be anything less? And that only gets uh, multiplied when you realise Cersei was tricked. Again. And isn't that enough of the sweetest joys? Idiot Cersei, who is wrong about so much, is wrong about this as well. And then you start to click at the wider meaning of all this. If Davos has been replaced by a fake, that means the whole thing is a ruse. Why Manly isn't with the Lannisters and Boltons, he's against them. We've got a full-blown conspiracy on our hands. Excitement levels rising, understatement. So let's explore that now, shall we? Davos, likely being quite shocked in the news that he's officially dead, yet still actually living and breathing for the moment, first points out the performance of the family, and the children especially. How very like Davos to focus on such. Wyler, Lord Wyman smiled. Did you see how brave she was? Even when I threatened to have her tongue out, she reminded me of the debt White Harbour owes to the Starks of Winterfell, a debt that can never be repaid. I'm going to use the word heartwarming again. How could it be anything else? A grandfather's pride in his granddaughter. We all remember Wyler's passionate performance back in the Merman's Court, and it turns out instead of chastising her like William did publicly, he was actually proud of his granddaughter for the intensity of her passion and her sense of duty, the sense of what is properly owed to the Starks. And even this sentence is honestly enough for chills, the idea that Wyman is still committed to the idea of the Starks and being loyal to them, but we'll hold off on that slightly because that feeling is only going to grow as we progress. And while noting that Lady the Owner, who was all for killing Davos and was only being truthful due to her own fears, Wyman makes sure to give Winifred, the elder sister, her due as well, because she knew the whole thing was an act and still did her bit, which is an entirely different kind of bravery. These Manderly sisters are forever engraved in our hearts as fan favourites for their two respective performances. Wyler for being so small, yet speaking up defiantly in front of enemies. Winifred for lying about herself and her nature in order to help the greater good. We sure do love these two, and I'm hoping we get a lot more of them in the future. To explain further, Wyman begins the first of several soliloquies. This one gives the background for the ruse explaining that it was all coming from a father in love with his son. Willis, the man captured not once but twice, and last seen sobbing at the feet of Jamie Lannister for the news that he could finally return home. Well, that came at a price. Ironically, the deal that Wyman has just completed on is actually the third such negotiation for Willis's life. The first, after his capture on the Green Fork, and doesn't that seem like a century ago, required Wyman to withdraw his support from Robb Stark while the war still waged. Back then, Wyman was still obviously very much of the opinion that the North would still win. You might recall in our very first introduction to him, he spoke to Bran about getting Willis out of captivity merely because his son wouldn't want to sit out the war. It all felt like such fun and games back then, didn't it? Well, look how it's progressed since. The second negotiation was actually between Rob and Tyrion, when Willis was nearly exchanged for Willem Lannister, but no terms were ever reached, and Willem was eventually murdered by Rickard Carstark anyway. Willis was eventually freed, freed, quote-unquote, when Harrenhal fell to Roose Bolton, as we were caught from Clash. But then, on the way to the Red Wedding, 
Willis was made part of the rear guard by Roos, who essentially sacrificed him to the mountain, and Willis was captured once again, leading to this current negotiation with Tywin, the Wyman refers to now. And the choice given to Mr. Mandry here is pretty straightforward given the new clout that Tywin would have had after the Red Wedding. Renounce the Stark cause, kneel to not only Tommen but Roos Bolton as Wardens North as well, or we will not only kill your one remaining son in dishonourable fashion, we will also sail to White Harbour and eliminate every single person we find there. Now, the actual truth of the matter is, Tywin simply didn't have the resources to mount such an attack on White Harbour, at least not for an extended period of time. Maybe in the future, but definitely not now. There was still far too much going on with the war and needing to deal with the Riverlands while also defending against Stannis, etc, etc. Plus, claiming that White Harbour would meet the same fate as the reigns of Castamere, by which he is obviously meaning wiped out entirely, is pure bluster for Tywin's part. Yeah, I know, it's a shock, isn't it? The Lannister reputation is in tatters already following the Red Wedding, and Tywin is an idiot, but I think he would at least be aware of that. Sacking an entire city of one's own realm isn't going to help with that, especially when said city is critical for the flow of food and money into your largest kingdom. While it's true, this is Tywin's normal operating system, and he would have considered the following carnage in the north to be Roos's problem, not his, and dealt with by him until Tyrion later turned up with Sansa and Eddard Stark's grandson as per his original plan. And while it's true he was definitely an absolute asshole and a moron who couldn't have considered or cared about what happened to the North less or its wider effects, I still say Tywin wouldn't have actually done this. Again, not for a long time anyway. And the irony is, well, let's say that Tywin was never killed and survived long enough to put this into action. Does he order Roos to do it? Maybe he does, but Roos probably isn't stupid enough to do anything except maybe go and kill the Mandalays and hand the city over to the Freys or something. And he's still got his hands full with Stannis and Winterfell anyway, so it's not like he's got time to be going down to White Harbour. So does Tywin marshal the Lannister slash Tyrell armies and sail them up there to enact this threat instead? If so, he's risking not just autumn storms, but would leave the realm wide open to both Euron and Aegon slash John Connington. So yeah, not happening. Absolute bluster. But that's all a rather large side note from me because it's all secondary to Wyman anyway. White Harbour doesn't matter when you compare it to his son. That's the primary threat, the threat to the life of Willis, which Tywin definitely would have ended, in all fairness. It's actually pretty impressive that Wyman was even ballsy enough to say that he would accept all terms after Willis's return and not before. Who knows what would have happened otherwise. Luckily, fate intervened right there and then with Tywin dying and the matter being picked up by the Freys. They come along, cunning and ambitious as ever, drop off Wendell's bones, propose a marriage between them, and after that they'll give Willis back. But Wyman maintained his backbone and said, no, 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 Willis first. The Frey said, no way, and we're pretty much headed towards a stalemate. So as much as this chapter is all about intricate planning and organisation, fate does have a large role because it just so happens this was about the time that Davos Seaworth showed up, giving Wyman a chance to fake loyalty to the Freys and Boltons while not actually turning. And Davos is actually pretty impressed with the risk taken here, when it would have been so much easier to just roll over and kill Davos, and therefore get his son back, which hints at how fiercely Wyman prides himself over being made of sterner stuff. And though Wyman claims otherwise, it most definitely was a risk. If a Frey walked in right here and now, and saw the three of them talking, there's really no out. But he also makes it clear how this was a political decision, because if anything had gone wrong, he would have blamed the Golas, and then actually executed Davos. Which is harsh, for Davos obviously, but does make sense. As Wyman says here, it is for his son, which Davos surely understands. And we know he did, because Davos fought as much back in Davos 3. This isn't an act of pure friendship, unfortunately. It's done with a purpose. Davos was imprisoned with a purpose. Davos was saved with a purpose. Which obviously gets you wondering just what that purpose is. But that'll have to wait for a slight later, because before that, we have the speech. 
and you might want to sit back for a bit because if ever a paragraph deserved to be read in full, it was this one. And don't worry, I'm aware there are some amazing dramatic readings of this speech on YouTube and elsewhere. I encourage you to go to listen to them. I, I know I can't really compete, but I'm going to go for it anyway because you can't do anything less of this one. For many people, it is the speech of the series, as you're about to see. Soon I must return to the feast to toast my friends of Frey, Mandalu continued. They watch me, sir. Day and night their eyes are on me, noses sniffing for some whiff of treachery. You saw them, that arrogant Sir Jared and his nephew Rhaegar, that smirking worm who wears a dragon's name. Behind them both stands Simon, clinking coins. That one has bought and paid for several of my servants and two of my knights. One of his wife's handmaids has found her way into the bed of my own fool. If Stannis wonders that my letters say so little, it is because I dare not even trust my maester. Fearmore is all head and no heart. You heard him in my hall. Maesters are supposed to put aside old loyalties when they don their chains, but I cannot forget that Fiamore was born a Lannister of Lannisport and claims some distant kinship to the Lannisters of Castle Rock. Foes and false friends are all around me, Lord Davos. They infest my city like roaches, and at night I feel them crawling over me. The fat man's fingers coiled into a fist, and all his chins trembled. My son Wendell came to the twins a guest. He ate Lord Welder's bread and salt and hung his sword upon the wall to feast with friends, and they murdered him. Murdered, I say, and may the phrase choke on their fables. I drink with Jared, jape with Simon, promise Rhaegar the hand of my own beloved granddaughter, but never think that means I have forgotten. The North remembers, Lord Davos. The North remembers and the mummer's farce is almost done. My son is home. Something about the way Lord Wyman said that chilled Davos to the bone. Yeah, no fucking shit chills to the bone, Davos. You don't need me to tell you how this is one of the most famous parts of A Song of Ice and Fire. Like I say perhaps the speech of the series. It's some of George's very best work in general and it absolutely hits our soul. There's no way I can do it justice in the slightest and I always don't want to analyse it because it's just too good. But let's just do a very quick basic overview. Let's pick out the key parts. First off, Wyman hates the free phrase that we met before in Davos 3. And that's good because we all hate phrase and that trio did seem particularly unlikable. So we really know that that was false and we want to see how much more false it is. Anyone becoming an enemy of the phrase is always very well received by us. But we also built on what we mentioned earlier about the phrase employing their underhanded tactics in the Newcastle to try and get ahead. The paid knights and seduced fools. Then there's the maester that hasn't given up his ties to the distant family despite his oaths. So we have that idea of rogue and scheming maesters that has come up more and more as the series progresses. And Wyman is aware of them all. He's a man in charge of his domain. He's aware of all this inner politicking. It's honestly more advanced than anything we really see in the Red Keep. And he has to suffer it. He gets to know it, but he can't act upon it. He can't admit that he knows it. For getting his son back, for keeping his people alive, he has to put up with it no matter how much it burns him. And war is one thing, where you're on one side and the enemy's on the other, and you both have a fair bash at each other with swords. This is something different. This is something much, much worse. It's something lacking in honour and soul, and that's what Wyman focuses on now as he switches to the fate of Wendell Manderley and the Red Wedding. His son came to the phrase as a guest, like he said. He was fully protected by guest right, one of the most sacred laws in the world and especially in the north, and the phrase broke it. They shattered it and then had the gall to lie about it afterwards. That is absolutely, positively unforgivable. It is a crime of the most base format and it demands vengeance. A vengeance that costs the suffering of these roaches. It demands a long and patient wait and the giving of a false face. There is always vengeance underneath. The north never forgets, he tells us, and now Willis is back, that vengeance can finally begin. This is what the Red Wedding truly means. This is its legacy. The willingness to go to any lengths to avenge it because it broke the basic rules. 
Whether that means treachery or lying or any number of risks, the North will do it, and Wyman Mandley will lead the way because it was done to the Starks, to whom he owes so much. The Northern spirit is alive. The Stark spirit is alive. You goddamn love to see it. And bear in mind, that's obviously flying in the face of George's normal message, don't go for revenge, revenge is bad. Well, it's pretty damn hard to accept that right here because we are 100% behind this idea. Again, keep that idea of Stark spirit, just keep that in your mind for now because I know, seems like we've built on it a lot there, it's going to come back even more in a minute. Davos, for his own part, while being touched by the passion with which Wyman speaks as he finally gets all this off his chest, remembers his original mission and tries to interject Stannis into the conversation. Hey, you like justice? Oh man, have I got someone for you to meet? He loves justice, you'll like it. Just let him near the phrase and you'll see, but that notion is quickly interrupted by both Robert and Wyman. Stannis is not their king. Stannis will never be their king. Just like Lyanna Mormont said, they know but one king in the north, whose name is Stark. Rob Stark is dead, Davos replies, and they accept that is very true. But there is another. Eddard Stark had more than one son. When Wyman commands Robert to bring the lad, a first-timer's heart must leap into their mouths. Is Wyman Manley about to bring out Rick and Stark? We never had any hints of where he and Shaggy Dog and Osher were going to, except eastward, that's all we knew. Well, this is technically eastward of where they left Bran, so that would make sense. The only teeny tiny hint we've ever had is Shaggy Dog chasing down a goat, and they probably have goats here, don't they? If Rickon is even still with his direwolf, are we really about to have one of the major, major reunions of the series? Davos echoes our own thoughts and reminds us of the importance beyond the emotional. The North will set themselves on fire if it means they get to help a son of Eddard Stark, but will it be a real one or a fake one? Well, that thought is though very in keeping with the themes of dance, isn't it? And perhaps the assertion that Stannis will never make cause for an imposter is good foreshadowing for if he ever crosses paths with Aegon. But that hope gets blown away immediately anyway, when Robert returns with a boy who doesn't seem recognisable to us or anyone else. Davos is clueless, and so are we, until Robert gives the lad his dagger. Write your name for Lord Seaworth. There is no parchment in the chamber. The boy carved the letters into a wooden beam in the wall. W. E. X. He leaned hard into the X. It's a holy shit moment, everybody. Wex the Squire, Wex Pike, seen so long ago back in Clash and forgotten by absolutely everybody ever since. I will content anyone who says they remembered that he survived prior to this. What, you didn't even know, did you? But he did. He survived the attack on Winterfell, and that makes him incredibly valuable. For what we are unravelling here is one of the biggest public scandals of the series, probably only really beaten out by Cersei and Jaime. There's plenty of personal secrets and scandals, but in terms of the public level, the lie about what happened at Winterfell is huge. It's probably lessened in impact for many of us now. It happened so long ago and the fake story of Fionn burning Winterfell has been spread around and believed by so many is almost seeped into canon territory. But the great lie of Ramsay actually attacking and burning the castle of his liege lord really, really fucking matters. It has shaped the current political landscape of the north without a doubt. Whether Fionn was there or not and that's why Ramsay was attacking is irrelevant. Ramsay attacked a fellow northern army led by Sir Roderick Cassell during a parlay Bidenbo, we should mention. He burned the home of not just his liege lord at the time, but his king, and then even murdered or captured all the inhabitants before marching them home for torture. He is no saviour or avenger against the Ironborn, as the tales have told. He is a traitor. This is treason of the highest order and makes Ramsay's life irrefutably legally forfeit, and likely Roos's as well, just due to his support. The Bolton campaign for rule, already built on the life of the Red Wedding, just had its bottom completely fall out from beneath it. If this information becomes widely known, almost all northern houses immediately turn on the Boltons and their campaign is finished. This, again, is information of the absolute highest order. And somehow, that's only half of Wex's value. 
But before we get to that second half, we have to focus on Ramsey's particular evils that he's putting the women of Winterfell through. And yeah, that does just uh, hurt our heart to hear that over again, doesn't it? Evils that a good man like Davos pales to hear. He is a monster, a barely human monster, both Robert and Wyman agree. One not fit to rule a mushroom, let alone the Northmen. And the type of people the Lannisters apparently want to get into bed with. The kind of people that Ned Stark's apparently only surviving trueborn child is being given to. Combine that with the phrase, Wyman says, and you see what they are up against. They lie and lie and lie and they don't even bother with making it believable half the time because they don't think they need to. He sums it up for us like this. Bruce Bolton lies about his part in the Red Wedding and his bastard lies about the fall of Winterfell and yet so long as they held Willis I had no choice but to eat all his excrement and praise the taste. And now, my lord, asked Davos, this is what the reign of the Boltons amounts to. Built on lies, betrayal and murder and it shall not last. Davos, naturally, hopes this all means that Wyman is about to declare outright for Stannis, which actually would be pretty damn handy. If the phrase in the city could be pacified, then Roose would have enemies at two different ends of the map, with his Winterfell in the middle of them. Alas, that is not the case anyway. The mummer's farce is nearly done, Wyman said. It's not over yet. If he casts his chips too soon, and Stannis or Davos don't come through, it still means death and defeat for his family. Instead, he intends to head for Winterfell, where this marriage will take place. He will go and smile and be an enemy hidden in plain sight. This is clearly thrilling for us as first-timers. It is now all but confirmed that we will be heading back to Winterfell in some form. And if you're anything like me and the Snitest, that is the very definition of exciting. I'm not going to go on about it now because I've said it enough times before and we've got other things to talk about. But Winterfell is the setting of the series. It is the centre of the story's emotional core and I believe the centre of its ending as well. So this is clearly really, really important stuff. And the idea of intrigue and having a good guy on site, for our purposes anyway, gets the juices flowing. We have a conspiracy to battle their conspiracy. Someone will be fighting for the Starks in Winterfell. It's here Wyman takes what seems like a needless moment to ask Davos about parting gifts and whether the South still uses them, as he intends to give each of the phrase a horse. Here in the chapter, it almost seems nonsensical, and definitely not as important as everything else we're talking about. But to re-readers, we know this is Wyman covering his bases on his planned retribution. The Boltons might have to wait longer, but the phrase don't. Those who come into his house and plan on marrying his kin. No, they can get theirs now. But he plans to stay within the rules, the rules of Gastry at least, and not sink to their level on that note. And we'll obviously be revisiting that plot in the future. But where it does get more interesting is where Wyman lets slip of the forces he still commands, finally picking up a storyline we haven't seen since the harvest feast of a clash of kings. Wyman has built warships. Some are here, some are hidden upon the white knife. And remember, we still don't know what happens to those later on. He commands more heavy horse than any lord in the north. He's got defences, he's got money. And he's got bannermen and allies and laddered knights. He has an army. He has a force that is going to finally get on this playing board sooner or later. So our spirits are rising again. The Starks have swords once more. But Davos is thinking of Stannis, not Starks. And whether all these forces can be joined to him, Wyman says they can, for a price. And it is a price Davos specifically must pay. Not as a knight or a hand, but as a smuggler. Which I think makes for a lot of poetic sense. For all the effect that Davos has had on the story during his time as Hand, it'd be pretty sweet if his greatest ever act comes as a humble smuggler and his true identity, rather than the higher mighty title stuff. But anyway, Robert now enters the conversation and he tells us of Wex's true value. As you mentioned earlier, he was at Winterfell. He knows Ramsay's crimes. That's very, very important. I really can't overstate that. But now we learn the second half. Completely unbeknownst to us, Wex survived the slaughter at Winterfell and he did it by climbing the heart tree in the Godswood, that most favourite of places. And our memories are stirring now because we remember who else went into that godswood when everything was over and we suddenly start clicking what information it is that Wex has brought us. And now it's finally confirmed. 
Wex was present for Brown and Rickon emerging from the crypts and they came to find Maester Lewin, a conversation we were also present for. Wex knows Brown and Rickon are alive. Again, the monumental importance of this is just gigantic. The possibility of either boy being alive changes everything. And though the trail of Brown has now gone cold, very cold in fact, Wex somehow has even more to offer because he managed to follow Osher, Rickon and Shaggy Dog. He knows their destination. He knows what we've been wondering about for three full books. And now Wyman knows too. So Davos clicks straight away. Wyman Manady wants Rickon Stark. With him, he'll counteract Roose's having Aya because Rickon's claim is stronger as a son. Roose's claim will fall. The North will rally around the son of Ned, which is true, look at how half react to the news of a daughter, and everything shall be restored. The Manderley promise will be fulfilled. Again, the spirit of the North, the one that we really like that means as much as anything in this series to us, is alive. The Starks still live on. So it's superbly thrilling for us as readers and signifies a major theme of the final act of the series, rebuilding what we started with. The return of the Starks to the North just in time for when they are needed most. Davos might be leaving us here in a moment, but we're going to feel that more and more as we go, and again, I've said this multiple places, and I struggle to think of anything more important to the overall story. So getting that initial beacon here, beneath the new castle, beneath the moment's court, in the north where it still matters, is extremely gratifying. It's super, super, super exciting for us. The mere possibility just of getting one of our beloved family back. And we again, we know the irony of this, because it's not I stuck with the Boltons anyway. But still, that doesn't really change the motivation. Wyman promises that if Davos delivers Rickon with Shaggy Dog as proof, then he will swear his army to Stannis and kneel to him as king. And with this being Davos Seaworth we're talking about, that means he'd do just about anything. Now there is a conversation to be had about how genuine Wyman is being here. As we've seen in this chapter, he's pretty cunning and we already know he's kind of ambitious as well. So there exists the idea that in this bringing Rickon back, the North will actually join together and reject Stannis after they've used him to take back Winterfell. We've referenced it plenty of times, and I've again spoken about it lots as well, especially in the Manderley episode of History of Westeros, so I won't dive into it here, we've got enough to talk about, but I will say that definitely seems quite likely to me. Mr. Manderley has motivations that just so happen to tie in with the restoration of his uh, sworn house. That doesn't mean he can't benefit from it as well, does it? Again, spoken about that in different places and also actually this just occurred to me i'm not sure but what else does bran say in that godswood that wex might be aware of i can't remember the top of my head i should have gone back and checked but there might be some more stuff that wex has to tell but anyway i'll save it for later because before that before recon comes back we have to know where davos actually needs to go and he's reaching for his finger bones because he knows the weight of the task just laid upon him if he can do it it's going to change the fate of an entire subcontinent it will mean everything to Stannis. In fact, it will mean more than Davos currently knows. And again, because Davos is Davos, he automatically assumes that there is someone better for the job than him. But Wyman says no, there is definitely not. All his people are river folk and fishermen, and this mission goes across the darkest and roughest seas. Davos has a bad feeling growing, which shows just how intuitive he is. Robert tells Wex, who's turned into a pretty cool dude, to show him on this map. And Wex shows off his knife skills, ones that would make Asher proud, by throwing his knife and in the quivering blade tells Davos exactly where he's going next. For half a heartbeat, Davos considered asking Wyman Manderley to send him back to the wolf's den, to serve Bartimus with his tails and Garth of his lethal ladies. In the den, even prisoners ate porridge in the morning, but there were other places in this world where men were known to break their fast on human flesh. What an ending. Skagos. Davos is going to Skagos, the wildest of wild places with the wildest of wildlings, and he's going to bring Rickon, who was already pretty wild when he lived in Winterfell, back home. Our Davos, who once risked his life to send an important boy across the sea, is now going to bring another one back. It's going to be dangerous, it's going to include mysteries, and it's going to be thrilling. 
What an amazing goodbye this is to our favourite friend. As cliffhangers go, it's pretty damn good. There's not really a lot of people that can contend with it. Maybe Brian, that's my first thought. Lots of people get left on the cliff at the end of either feast or dance, but like I say, few have such an outlined adventure with so little knowledge about how it's going to go. Now we're going to have the rest of the book where, yes, the plots of Wyomandley and the Wolf of the North are really, really going to progress, but this is the very last of Davos we ever get. We've got no idea if this mission is going to be a success, if Davos will have a shipwreck on the way there, if Rickon even wants to go home, if Osha is with him still and what she thinks of it all, if Davos is going to have to try and steal Rickon, which would be very difficult for him, if there's a shipwreck on the way home, or, or what, something else. We can guess that it definitely isn't going to be simple because this is George, but that's what it includes. All we really know is that it's just thrilling. Davos will get to use his true skills and use them for good, and we cannot wait. Now, before we say goodbye, let's talk about will Rickon get back to the mainland and Winterfell? Yeah, I'd say he probably does. I think all the Starks end up back there. But will Davos be with him? That's harder to see. There's a lot of theories out there for what Davos will get up to and wins, and while I'd love to go through all the possibilities, there just isn't time. So let's focus on one that does actually stick out to me. And that is that Davos is going to end up at Hardhome. I know there's several variations of this theory flowing about out there, and several people have had similar ideas. I believe I'm right in saying that the first place I heard about it personally was from Davos Fingers, that might be wrong. But I know that uh, Bookshelf Stud also had a really good essay on it at some point, which I should probably dig out and read again. Anyway, just very briefly, let me relay the general idea to you. In about 14 chapters time, we will have our first Aya chapter of the book the blind girl. And in that chapter, I hears about the wildlings massing up at Hardhome, something we've already had hints of already from Varamir and John's chapters, and will be built up as we go in John's further story as well. But I also hears that two Lucini ships sailed up to Hardhome to offer apparent aid to the starving wildlings. Except what they did was say, okay, we'll take the women and children first, and loaded the other boats with such. And then, instead of turning around to help any of the men, just sailed off intending to take those women and children for slaves. Hmm, nice guys. However, what happened then was that the two ships were split. A storm took one, the good heart, and that was blown to Bravos, which is how Aya knows all this uh, information, because all the slaves are seized. It's illegal in Bravos. But what about the other ship, the elephant? Well, there's an idea out there that the elephant was blown onto Skagos because of the storms. Lots and lots of autumn storms at the moment. We've already seen them from Sam's POV. We've heard in John's POV that two of uh, Sandor Sand's ships were blown onto Skagos as well. So it's perfectly possible. And maybe that's going to happen to Davos as well. Maybe it's not going to be an easy landing. But anyway, the idea states that Davos will arrive on, on Skagos and instead of being able to just grab Rickon and go, he's going to find all these refugee wildlings. The Sagosi are going to be looking after them or debating what, whether to help them or how they could help them or whatever. And Davos are going to be eventually enlisted to go back and help all the ones at Hardhome because they are starving or the Watch is coming or worse, the others are coming. So yeah, Davos might be taking his first steps into that storyline as well. And that, and I think, might mix with two different possibilities. One, Davos is going to be charged with going to save a whole bunch of people. That would be very hard for him to turn down. Plus, what we mentioned earlier about what if Rickon doesn't want to go? What if he's quite happy in Skagos and he's in his element and he's far away from the Game of Thrones and doesn't want to be pulled back into it? And Davos actually realises, hey, this might be the best place for the kid, almost? That's going to be very, very conflicting for him, given, again, the weight of this and what he can achieve for Stannis and everything. And George likes to write about hearts in conflict. So I could see that very easily becoming a real dilemma for Davos. So let's say that that happens. And whether he brings Rickon along or not, let's say that Davos does go to Hardhome to go and save people. Because again, we know he likes to save people. Assumedly, he's going to have a ship or some ships to achieve that. And well, the theory states basically he will witness the equivalent of the Hardhome that we saw in 
the show where a massive massive slaughter occurs we get another big moment it's basically the next fist of the first men where the others finally unveil themselves to the world at large we get another massive attack and davos not only is convinced of her existence but then becomes tasked with going back and telling all these people screw your war there's something much much bigger we need to get on with that would be very davos like wouldn't it looking at the greater good and the true priority so that's just one theory and again i encourage you to go and read up about that because it explained a lot better than i did it but it'd be very very interesting wouldn't it anyway enough of all that i think i've talked long enough to you today it's goodbye davos that's the hard thing that's why i've been trying to put off i'll talk about any number of theories so i don't have to say goodbye to davos again i mean what's left to say about that chapter it's superb isn't it it's basically perfect the feelings that you get in it, the absolute manipulation of our soul by George, the uplifting, just the, the stark promise being alive, the stark spirit, I'm going to call it that again, is the centre of the story. And here we're getting it back and we're getting it back through our best person. Davos is the best. And I just can't wait to see what happens to him and wins. I'm going to leave it there because otherwise I'll start prattling. And again, I've spoken to you long enough. That is today's chapters, everybody. What a ride. What a ride. Very, very quickly. Next week, I assume we're going back to four. That'll be Daenerys five, Melisandre one. Oh yeah. Reek three and Tyrion eight. If we're going back to four, that is. I'm going to leave it there because my voice is getting sore. And I want to go and think about Davos four some more. And I'm sure you do too. So thank you everybody for tuning in, for listening. Hope to see you again next week. Thank you, thank you as always, especially to our patrons. Happy birthday again to Aziz. I'm going to head off. See you next time.